0: I'm Madeline. I'm Lindsay. I'm Rachel.
1: I'm Marius. I'm Tim. I'm Justin. And And this is ComicsVerse.
2: I've literally wanted to do this podcast since before the ComicsVerse podcast ever existed. And it feels like a lot of different groups of people have been under attack in the world lately. And at ComicsVerse, we try and do our part by celebrating these groups via comic book characters who represent them. You guys remember we did Marvel's Muslim Superheroes. We did Celebrating the Women of X-Men. We did Cyclops is a Dick coming up soon. Just kidding, that doesn't celebrate him. But anyway, um, I couldn't be more proud to discuss today's topic, homosexuality in comics, because this is Pride Month, so yay. Before I introduce our very special cast, uh, just a quick reminder that you can find this podcast, articles, interviews, videos galore, and more over at comicsfirst.com. So another part of what makes today so special is that I'm joined by ComicsVerse's entire senior team of editors who work on what we call at ComicsVerse the SMIndies section, or we should just call it just Smendy's, which involves indies. Uh, if you're interested in reading analyses and reviews on anything, Valiant, Dark Horse, Oni Press, Fantagraphics, Drawn and Quarterly, web comics, who am I missing? Boom, Alterna,
3: Action Lab, Titan, Four Fifty One, Kickstarter.
2: Yeah, Kickstarter comics. We cover Kickstarter comics. So that's really cool. But anyway, so first up tonight is Lindsay Mott. First time on a podcast. Welcome, Lindsay.
0: Hi, Justin.
2: Hi, Lindsay. How are you?
0: I'm pretty good right now.
2: Yeah? <laughs> so what makes you passionate about today's topic?
0: Well, I'm a bisexual woman, and I grew up in a very conservative Christian family. So actually, the first time I was exposed to anyone not being straight was in media. So I understand that that is something that's very important for people who are not in very progressive parts of the country and they need to see themselves represented in comics and et cetera.
2: Awesome. I think that your voice is going to add a lot here.
0: Thank you. Uh,
2: So next up, another first-timer. So Madeline Slade. Hi, Madeline. Hey. Uh, From Westchester, just like me. (laughs) And an amazing writer on the site, if I do say so. Oh. But yeah, so why is it, Important for you to be here uh, to discuss today's topic.
4: So I'm uh, bisexual and non-binary, uh, specifically gender fluid, and I think that representation in all media is like has an extreme like emotional effect on people. Like when I first came out in middle school, I didn't have any idea what being by looked like or like what it meant. I didn't even have the word for it. The first time I came out to someone, I called myself a half lesbian, which in retrospect is hilarious, but it, it, I was 100% serious about it at the time. I was very scared about talking about it and just kind of like kept it internal up until I started finding young adult queer romance novels and like i went through this whole phase in eighth grade where i was just like obsessed with them and i was reading them constantly because they were the only representation i had and like most of these books were not that well written but i just kind of like ate them up because i was like craving this representation and i think lgbt representation has come a long way since then like you're starting to see queer characters in like Cartoon Network shows and stuff and like it's it's a completely different ballpark so I'm really interested in kind of analyzing how representation has changed over the years and like what's good about it what's bad about it what's what needs to be worked on you know so and and just how it can be best used to impact people's lives for the better
2: so one of our returning champs today and rounding out the Spindies trifecta or the Spindies triumvirate, as I call it. Welcome back, Rachel.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: I am so excited that you're here.
3: Thank you. I'm excited to make sure that our podcast doesn't get ba- banned in Alabama. <laughs> I assume that was my reason for being here. Thank you so much.
2: <laughs> That's amazing. But yeah, I don't think it's going to help.
3: <laughs> no, it's a bit too late, isn't it? Yeah. It's a bit too late.
2: (laughs) But anyway, so you're our resident heterosexual girl today. So still your voice is every bit as important as everyone else's, I think. Um, So let's extend my question outside of the scope of this episode. Why do you think it's important to have ally voices in discussions like this period?
3: Well, I am heterosexual, but I'm also a woman of color so in that sense having allies as both a woman and a person of color is essential in order to gaining your humanity in the eyes of society i think though today while i'm very honored that you think my voice is important and matters i think what's even more important today is my listening and the fact that i'm asking questions because i am inherently coming from a position of privilege in our culture and society. So it's more important for me to acknowledge that and to let your voices shine today. It's an honor to be here in every sense of the word to be invited into this. And I'm going to make sure throughout every second of this podcast that I don't forget that.
2: Tim O'Reilly.
5: Welcome back, Tim. Thank you. It's great to be back.
2: (laughs) So we've been talking about this podcast for literally over a year, you and I, and what's something that you hope we can accomplish in this discussion today?
5: Well, I think first and foremost, the thing that I really like to get out of this is that we really get into an in-depth discussion about homosexual representation. Because I think that was our initial intention when you and I first talked about this was like, we really, because we've been going back and forth about it and just like conversations talking about it because you and I were able, that was something we could relate to. And I think that if nothing else gets out of this um, podcast, which I hope several things do, but if nothing else does, I hope that what we can get out of this is that we can really get a further discussion about the um, homosexual representation that's gone on in comics up until now and hopefully going forward. Because I think there's been a lot of talk about what's been done before by other podcasts, by other articles, other publications. But I think that, we're in a very unique position, our company, given that you've made it such a progressive one, that we can really go and push something further. And I hope that's what we can do through this conversation.
2: Thank you. And I, I hope that you can be the gatekeeper of that and hold us to that and make sure that the, we accomplish that. Do you say the gatekeeper? That's what I oh. heard. I was about to say that.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> I don't pronounce my T's. <laughs> <laughs> it's a silent T. I was too
3: straight to hear that.
2: So. <laughs> So, Marius, what would a podcast be without Marius, Teen, and Comp? Oh, thank you, Justin. Um, Thanks for having me. In another world, like, sort of like, just to bring it to X Men, because that's Marius' nice thing. Like, right. if you were cable from another dimension, I feel like I would be Rachel and the Ascani and raising
1: you. Oh, thanks. That'd be fun. Nice to hear. Isn't that
2: the nerdiest thing ever anyone's ever said ever? Yes, I barely it know. It probably is. Yeah.
1: Like, I mean, the only way that it could be like more fucked up in terms of like the time travel logic if is if we were to speak about like Shadow Star and Longshot, right? Yes. Because uh, aren't they like each other's dads or something like? Oh, I didn't even know that. I think so. I think I read that the other day, and then I, I, like they're I, each read other's the dads. Yeah right. I don't. I don't even know how that's supposed to work, but it's kind of like uh, in Futurama where where like Fry is his own grandfather, but it's like very Java's father. I I don't know. That's
2: kind of cool. I actually want to read that now. Peter David, uh, no doubt.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I never really. I never really got into like the Richter Shadow Star Longshot character. I don't know. Right. But, uh, hopefully, a bit better today because we're gonna talk about. We it. We are someday.
2: gonna talk about it. So. Thank you so much for being here. So, and the same question kind of goes for uh, you and Tim. You know, we've been doing this podcast a long time. You and I have talked about doing an episode like this.
1: So, what's something that you hope we can accomplish today? So, I think, and I'm, I'm pretty sure we're going to get into that in the next segment, Even though the podcast is specifically about uh, homosexuality in comics, uh, I think we're going to get more into like other queer identities and uh, queerness in general and how that's represented in comics or maybe not represented in comics. So I think that some of our listeners who went into this like expecting us to only talk about homosexuality. Like some of them, I think we can give like a broader idea of what like other queer queer labels and queer uh, stuff is, and I think that's pretty exciting. And also, uh, I completely agree with what the others have said in, in terms of representation, because uh, what I've been hearing a lot lately is like YouTube armchair philosophers who are like, but, "But it's not, it's not really important if you're represented in comic books or like in movies or not." And I mean. Uh, I feel like we. uh, I I would like to people, like some of our listeners, maybe that's how you might think, and I would like to challenge that and like maybe be able to change your mind with the others. I don't know.
2: No, I think that's really great. And what's really cool is that we all kind of, no one here represents a typical, quote-unquote, homosexual. We all represent different places on the spectrum of what it means to be queer, and I think that that's something we can all bring to the table. And I think even Rachel... Uh, and Marius, who define as heterosexual. I think that, I, I think queerness is a mentality, personally, and uh, a perspective, and um, right. yeah, just my opinion. That's based on absolutely nothing academic except for what Justin Alba thinks. And unfortunately, uh, no one is giving out degrees in Justin Alba thinking. Thank They should be, forward. though. They should be. I, I, thank you. I appreciate that, Marius, but I think the world would end. But anyway, <laughs> so we're going to talk about this a little bit more, and, you know, I think it's important about, like, Marius, like you said, about the title of this podcast. And I remember, Madeline, when I asked you about it, to be a panelist, um, you know, you really brought up the term homosexuality. You said it wasn't all-encompassing. And, and I said, hey, how about the first thing we talk about is, you know, let's add the discussion about queerness in a larger way into this. And we discussed this personally, but you yourself go by they, them pronouns. And for those who are listening and they don't know why that's significant, can you talk about what that means? And can you talk about gender queer? Um, because I think that a lot of people have a lot to learn. And I think that, you know, I've learned a lot just from knowing you and the other people here at comics first and, you know, in my life lately. And I think this is an excellent opportunity to educate people.
4: Oh, okay. So like, I think part of my, my initial concern was that I feel like there are other sexualities within the community that are, that are queer In the sense that they are not what the straight world wants, but aren't necessarily homosexuality, but still should be addressed. For instance, I'm bisexual, which people have kind of certain preconceived notions about what that is, like, oh you're not really committed to the community. Oh, you can be straight anytime you want. Like you ha- some people bring up the phrase straight passing privilege, which personally, I don't have that at all because as I am somebody who also doesn't fit in in terms of gender, um, ever since I was a little kid, I wouldn't refer to myself as a girl. I would refer to myself as a tomboy because I didn't really have the language to describe myself, but my gender is more kind of in a neutral place and then sometimes switches to feminine and sometimes switches to masculine. So when I interact with the world, like that's who I am and whether I'm in a relationship with a woman or with a man or with somebody of a different gender um, or no gender or whatever, like that's a part of how those dynamics play out. And especially when I am on in romantic or sexual relationships with straight men, it can become kind of an issue because they're kind of like expecting Things to play out in certain ways like expecting to pay for the date, expecting for me to want or not want certain things in bed, thinking that certain words are going to be compliments and make me feel better, but they actually just make me feel worse because they paint me in this very feminine light that I don't fit in with. So for me, when I date guys, I still feel queer. And so... That's something that I think is important and something that I also like. I bring my um, relationships with women. I learn certain things from them and I bring them into other relationships um, and vice versa. And there are certain characters we're going to talk about today that I think that experience relates to them as well. For instance, Harley Quinn. There's also I I also want to give a shout out to like asexuals who have a different experience with sexual orientation that I do, but I would still also say is a queer experience. For instance, my brother is ace, and um, he doesn't really, even though people say that he can just pretend that he's straight, he really can't. He has a hard time fitting in with a group of hetero men who are, like, talking about, like, banging some chicks and, like, how hot those girls' boobs are, and he's just kind of, like, uncomfortable and just sitting there, you know? So, like... Um, (laughs) there's just, there's a lot, there's a lot of different sexual orientations that I think are important to talk about that aren't just homosexuality.
2: Let me ask a question that I think some people who may not know a lot about this might ask. Although if I do say so myself, I think I know the answer to this question, (laughs) but sort of how do you decide or what makes you feel more masculine or more feminine in terms of gender and how do you sort of decide that?
4: It's it's an individual thing. Like um, a lot of people, when they think about trans and non-binary people and gender, they kind of think, "Oh, are you just looking at various stereotypes and applying them to yourself?" And for me and a lot of other people I know, that's really not the case. When I feel more of a woman, it's not necessarily feminine in a conventional way, like the type of woman that I resonate strongly with is this kind of like hairy Amazon chick that's like ready to destroy the patriarchy, right? And whereas when I feel more masculine, it's not necessarily, dudes, it's more like an awkward gay male nerd who like, you know. And so, and um, I don't know exactly how to explain feeling these things it's just kind of a very deep thing but it's like
2: hmm. would you say intrinsic to who you are?
4: Um. Yeah I would say that I mean I can't really even when I try to hide it people always know that I just don't quite fit in with like what chicks are supposed to be like and that's been true pretty much my entire life People have certain expectations of me. People say, like, hey, ma'am, or call me a lady or stuff. And I just kind of have this knee-jerk, like, cringing response, even when I know that they're trying to be nice to me. (laughs) So... I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with this. but No, yeah. <laughs> I, I
2: think that that's actually a really awesome answer. Uh, Tim, I want you to add on to this. Can you talk about the difference between gender and sexuality? A lot of people don't know. And feel free to answer yeah. a little bit about that, too. I know you wanted to chime in.
5: Yeah, so um, I think for me, they're more intrinsically linked to one another. Because for me, the, a lot of the ways I go about expressing both my gender, I guess just my gender, is through a very sexual lens because I approach a lot of my life in a very sexual way. That's not necessarily saying I'm sleeping with people left and right, not that that's good or bad, but it's like the way I feel sexually, do I feel sexually powerful, important, or like, I guess not aggressive, but in control, those things inform how I go about my day to day life. So for me, when I'm talking, when I talk about queerness and gender identity, I don't personally identify as they or them pronouns, nothing like that. But I know that I was raised primarily by my mother. So the way I learned how to be masculine and be a quote unquote man was actually through my mother. Um, not to say that she's this like gruff, maddenly woman or anything, but that she, but that I think that she taught me to be a general good person and to be a functioning person to be of, of society is that, that when I observed her it's like I saw that there was really no difference between being male and female in that sense that the things that make you a person, they're not necessarily assigned to one or the other. You can be you can be more aggressive and still be feminine. you can be in you can still be submissive and be masculine because I think my to me my mother is both of those things. and I've always been around very powerful empowered women and so I never really saw, these strict gender roles. I was aware of them, obviously, but it was like it never informed about how I, it never told me that I had to be one way or the other. I was always very much into um, action figures and video games just as much as I was into Barbies and gymnastics. And, but in doing both of those, I would bring a, a different approach from like the quote unquote other side of the binary there. So, like, I, so while I say I don't necessarily identify with they, them pronouns, I know that I can inf- I infuse my cisgender masculinity with a certain feminine touch to it because I know that the way I go about things is not strictly stereotypically masculine. I do have I am a little softer in certain regards, but I'm also very much in control of things. But it's not from a place of insecurity. I don't think that I'm insecure in my masculinity, but I think that comes from the fact that I am aware of the feminine qualities of myself and I'm proud of them. So. I think when when we talk about queerness and gender and sexuality, I think that they can really inform each other very well in that your, um, your gender is something that can inform your sexuality or not. But they can also go hand in hand with one another because um, the way you approach sex, I think, for a lot of people, they approach it from a well. I'm a man. I have to be. The, I have to be the one in control, or I have to be the one that's pleasuring you, or females like I have to be the one who's submissive, or if in this case with homosexuals, there's tops and bottoms and sides and verses and every which angle you can think of. <laughs> but I think those are all very intrinsically linked to gender ideas but they don't have to be and so i think that while they can inform each other they don't have to gender is more about the qualities of yourself that you see as assigned to a specific thing if you don't see yourself as aligning with any particular way then you might not have a specific gender you go by you could be they them in that case or you could in my case say i know there's a lot more qualities of me that are that feel more masculine. So I identify that way. Like for instance, um, when I started really exercising in earnest a few years ago and really starting to get healthy, I did it. And the image I had in my head, like a lot of people have like an, an ideal body goal for me, that goal was wonder woman because I'm a petite guy. I'm not going to be the Superman or the Batman kind of guy. I'm not going to be Wolverine. I'm going to I'm have a smaller build generally. So I look to a woman, a very strong, very athletic woman, who to me was a more attainable goal. But that, but that didn't tell me that I was less of a man because of that. It was just like, to me, that's where that that's the best distinction of um, gender right there is that like. For me, it's like I'm aware that I am more masculine, but I'm also aware of the female elements of my body or the stereotypically female ones. So while I may act more masculine, I have certain feminine traits about me that I'm aware of that I also want to fulfill and that I might imbibe within the masculine steps that I take through my life.
1: All right. So first off, thanks very much to to Tim and Madeline, of course, for for sharing that. I think it's really interesting to uh, have these experience like shared for our, uh, I guess, for our listeners because um, something that I hear a lot, like even from people who um, are kind of like I don't want to say on board, but are trying to be kind of supportive for the community, but are still confused to some regards how gender identity works. Um, a lot of them think that taking up like a non-binary or even genderqueer uh, or like both uh, identity is like a validation of the strict uh, gender rules that uh, are being set by society, which I don't think is accurate in, in, in most cases. So uh, lately I've been doing some some research and trying to talk to as many genderqueer or non-binary people as possible. And generally like the, the impression that I got was that in like, if we were to exist in a vacuum or like in a society without strict gender roles, most of these people would still have their non-binary identity because it's it's not necessarily like intrinsically linked to um, to societies' uh, gender roles. And I think that uh, uh, Madeline, you you have a, a, I I guess going into your experience that it's uh, really good for our listeners to to kind of understand that these things don't necessarily have to be like intrinsically linked. Then on the other hand, I have heard some, uh, genderqueer folks who, um, I guess who, who said that, uh, I think they think in like an idealized version of society where there are no generals. they wouldn't need uh, a genderqueer label. Um, but, uh, since we are living in a society with these strict generals, it's still something that affects their inner sense of selves as at least that's how, uh, that's how a lot of people, um, I guess, uh, explained that to me. And, uh, in doing like the research, I like, especially in the last few days, I think that I've come to question like my own gender identity as well. Uh, I was kind of hesitant to, uh, about like, uh, thinking about this in, like in this way about like my inner sense of self or whatnot. But, um, I think that I've kind of come to realize that, well, like, do I think of myself as 100% masculine? Like, no, I don't, re- I wouldn't really say so. So, I mean, uh, like we were talking about, uh, they, them pronouns. I don't think that that's like accurate to me. I still, I still think that it's perfectly fine for me to go by he, him pronouns. But at the same time, I, uh, if like, if we're going to acknowledge that it's, a, it's a spectrum, which I, I think is new to some of our listeners, uh, at least, then I would say that I'm not strictly like 100% uh, on the spectrum as I as I did uh, or like at, w- at one binary of the spectrum, I guess, alleged binary uh, than I would have said uh, earlier. And I think that's like a realization that I could only come to because I dealt with the topic and because uh, I, I had some kind of exposure to, to people who felt not the same way, but, but uh, kind of uh, alike. I want to say so in terms of representation and in terms of like people sharing their stories I think that it's something that would help a lot of people
3: would it be okay if I asked a follow up question um, I've just been really fascinated and thank you so much to Madeline Tim and Marius for what you said Um, I'm a women's studies major, and so I've always been taught in college that gender is a construct. And as a woman, that's always been somewhat comforting to me, because as a woman of color with African-American hair, for example, to be told that, hey... I've gotten insult because of my hair. I've been compared to a lamb or dehumanized. So to be told that I'm not feminine enough. So to be told that gender is a construct can be really uplifting in that one sense because it's like, oh, there is no measure between black beauty and white beauty. There is no dichotomy where there's a lesser. But on the same hand, when somebody says that about race, that race is just a construct, I'm like, okay, wait a minute. Like police brutality or like the over-sexualization of black women. That's not just something made up. So I would just like to know your thoughts on... Is Is gender a construct? Is sexuality simply a construct to anyone here? And I'd like to open that up to everyone.
1: So I think that, um, like the race thing or like race being a social construct, I have only, um, dipped into that lately. And I think that a lot of, like a lot of people going into, um, going into thinking about race as a social construct, think that it uh, erases like some of the complexities with race. And I do get that. That's a legitimate concern because I mean, yeah, I mean the fact that people look differently is going to affect like uh, in, in terms of social consequences and like, uh, like people in the, uh, people of color in the United States in general face, like all these, uh, issues that, uh, or disproportionately face all these issues. So, in a in a way, race is very much real. But I think I don't think that this is necessarily like contradictory. Like, race can be a social construct, but still have really real um, repercussions for for people affected by that because it's like so widely accepted in society. Um, I think it's similar to gender as uh, in terms of. Okay, I mean, it, gen, both gender and race have some kind of origin in like. Uh, in, like, factual reality, but uh, the way that we talk about them makes them the social construct. For instance, in race, uh, I get th- this is, like, a really stupid argument that I hear from, like, ooh, race realists or whatever. It's like that there are uh, differences between uh, Asians and blacks and white people and whatnot that are, like, really intrinsic to to uh, these uh skin colors i guess but then the problem with that is that like even amongst uh, people of color there are like huge uh like i guess differences in terms of uh, genetics so the categories that we use for for race as a social construct are really arbitrary like it's really just a superficial type of deal mm. it, with gender i think um like the feelings do exist uh, and we should be cautious not to, to say that all these feelings are just made up. Like, no, they have like real, um, legitimacy to them. And, uh, like some of them, um, like would even, uh, exist in another society in, in a very similar way. Uh, but the terms that we use to define what gender is and what, like what identities we can have and also how we think of ourselves will also be heavily informed by, um, how society thinks of gender. For instance, like uh, when we when we look at other um, societies in which non-binary gender identities have long been accepted, uh, th- that society is going to have a, a whole another idea about uh, how how gender works. That's going to inform the uh, inner sense of self of a lot of people. Whereas in um, in like Western societies nowadays. Uh, uh, Oh, I, I guess it's slowly starting to change, but you're still going to hear from a lot of people that was only two genders. Uh, so um, I think in that way, both race and, and gender can be categorized as a social construct without taking away like the complexities and the issues that people face with them, if that makes sense.
3: Absolutely. Thank you.
1: Okay, sure.
5: Yeah, I mean, I think... This is something I've noticed because I also I've done a couple of th- classes and in research into women's studies. Also, probably not definitely not as extensive as you have, being women's studies major. But um, I remember this is like a, this is one of the topics that was explored pretty heavily in feminism. Is that like the idea that gender is a fluid idea or that it is a social construct? Like the question of it, not necessarily not necessarily saying yes or no. I think Marius put it very nicely in that it's not necessary. I think it's it's almost too crass to say that it's social. It's a social construct because that almost simplifies it, I think, in a lot of ways. To me, I would say, yes, I think it is a social construct, but that, that does not invalidate the idea that there can be a gender or that someone chooses to adhere to it. That's not a bad thing. I think the fact that it is socially developed, to me, is indicative of... This tells you it, to me it informs more about the society that you're looking at based on how they constructed the gender assignments within that society and not so much as just saying that oh well this society they did this and these people made it up because i think that disrespects the culture and it does and it closes off the conversation about gender and about queerness and about the potential of sexual fluidity and gender fluidity. So I think that it's very important to look at it from a more analytical standpoint, less from a, is it this or is it that? And just look at, okay, we know that, yes, there are certain elements of of gender and sexuality that have been designed by different societies that differ from each other. But then you should look at them and compare them to each other and compare and contrast and understand how do they differ? Why do they differ? And what does that say about the society? How do they treat those people of different genders? How do they treat the genders they have? Do they have more than one gender? I know that in uh, some Native American cultures, they have more genders than other ones. So I think it's just, you need to look at what you're studying and then say, Okay, we know that they've developed this. Now, how did they do it? Why did they do it? What does it say about that? And is there something that we think is potentially not very nice about it? Where can you develop more? And not from a like um, American superiority standpoint, but from a like, are you treating them with basic human rights <laughs> given kind of standpoint?
4: I think like something like I like I I think Tim's bringing up like a really good. Um, point that there are a lot of different cultures that have different gender systems or used to in the past and it's important to remember that gender the gender binary as we know it today the idea that there's men and women and Men have these certain qualities and therefore women must have these opposite qualities to them. And there's like everything is gendered in one way or the other. That was a very European construct that was very tied with imperialism. There were a lot of times where Europeans, while going over to colonize various, various peoples, would look at various other like gendered systems and use either kind of brainwashing through utilizing like religious texts texts or like even outright murdering people so that they could change it to this whole male female dichotomy so Gender as we know it today isn't how it always has been, but gender has been around throughout the ages in all sorts of different places, like pretty much since the dawn of time. So I think we need to be aware that the gender binary is socially constructed and there are aspects of gender that are socially constructed, but not necessarily the whole thing, if that makes any sense. No matter, like, what part of the world and what time you go to, there are always going... There have always been transgender and non-binary people, and just there have been different words to describe it, you know?
2: You know, my question is, there's going to be someone listening to this, uh, probably a few people out of 300,000. I keep dropping that number. It must be slippery. Um, We're going to be like, shut the f*** up, guys and ladies, and them, and, like, what the f*** are you guys talking about? Men are men, women are women, men have penises, women have vaginas. What what, what can we say to our critics, basically, is what I'm asking. Marius?
1: So, uh, the way I usually uh, argue about this is that um, I think that people should be aware that this is not an empirical debate, but a normative debate. And there's a huge difference between those two if we're talking like in philosophical terms. Because on the one hand, like when we're talking about what genitals does someone have or what pair of chromosomes does someone have, first off, let me clarify that uh, we're talking about physical sex right here. And physical sex, uh, too, isn't as binary as many people like uh, to give credit for, I guess. It's also not as... Uh, I think a lot of people paint it to be not changeable, which I would disagree with because a lot of factors that uh, make us consider what uh, physical sex is can be changed. Like when we're talking about genital surgery or whatnot, but yeah, but that's just, uh, that's just uh, like a quick point about, about sex, not about gender. There's, there's a difference uh, in those. And when we talk about gender, we usually talk about gender identity as in, one's inner sense of self. I think that's the definition that the APA uses, the American Psychological Association. And I think that at some point, we just have to acknowledge that uh, whether you want it or not, these emotions, this inner sense of self, for whatever reason, it does exist. And it does have these um, intense repercussions for, for people who experience so That, that I, I'm sure uh, Madeline will be able to, to talk about that more from personal experience than I could. So... Um, and I mean, that's, uh, we can get this from, from scientific research, but also from just talking to people who experience that, which I think the latter is even more important. If these feelings exist, then it's going to be, like, from an ethical normative standpoint, it's going to be really hard for anyone to argue that we should just ignore them or we should just uh, still not treat people the way they would if we accept that, you know, we should be treating people with respect and we should be improving society to be best for everyone. And then I just think that I missed the point where there was, like, a really strong... Uh, ethical imperative for someone who is born with a dick to be uh, a man in as in a societal role of a man I don't think that any imperative like that exists at all and uh, I think it's really hard to to defend that so um, to our listeners who think that uh, gender is a binary I would say I think you're talking about physical sex, and even physical sex is pretty uh, complicated, but um, I'm not making an empirical argument, but I'm making a a normative argument to improve society for, for everyone.
4: People are like, well, how can you dispute that there are these certain genitals or whatever? And yes, those exist, but also we gave meaning to those genitals that isn't necessarily innate to them. Um, We decided this means masculinity and this means femininity, but those bodies don't necessarily have to be that way. For instance, not to be crass, but like I personally think my boobs are manly as hell. So it's like we need to stop thinking so simplistically that we know exactly every single detail about a person from the second that we lay eyes on them that we know what they're going to like, what job they're going to have, like all of these random things based off of body parts, you know, because that's not science. That's like looking up, like, like assuming your whole life based off of like looking at like your horoscope or something.
2: Uh, A lot of people don't know about the Kinsey reports. So the Kinsey reports were two books, published about human sexuality, the latter of which was published in 1953. Dr. Kinsey conducted experiments to discover what people were actually doing sexually, not just what people thought they were doing. So hopefully by reiterating the findings here, and it's important to say similar experiments like this have been conducted since, and they've had similar findings, but hopefully we can put to rest some misconceptions that good people might have. Uh, So before I mention the findings, let me tell you some some conclusions that I think we can draw. And then I hope that everyone will add on to this. So like we said, sexuality is a spectrum. So yes, some people are exclusively heterosexual and some people are exclusively homosexual. However, most people fall somewhere in between. Bisexuality is every bit as real as homosexuality and heterosexuality. So oftentimes I always felt like bisexuality comes under attack from both sides. Uh, You know, we talked a little bit about that before as like sort of like a passing fancy and um, was that the word? What was the term you used?
4: The term that I've heard is straight-passing privilege.
2: Straight-passing privilege. Wow. That's uh, that's a lot of buzzwords there. But yeah, a lot of people think that. And, and I think that when we look at the Kinsey reports, we can see bisexuality is every bit the norm as anything else, as anywhere else on the spectrum. And then also something that we can tell is that most people experience same-sex attraction in their, in their lifetime. So from the reports, um, they also state nearly... Forty six percent of the male subjects had reacted sexually to persons of both sexes in the course of their adult lives. And thirty seven percent had at least one homosexual experience. Eleven point six percent of white males ages 20 to 35 were given a rating of three. Uh, so the Kinsey scale starts at zero. It's exclusively heterosexual and six is exclusively homosexual. So eleven point six percent of white males ages 20 to 35 were given a rating of three, so that's smack dab in the middle. And then it says equally heterosexual and equally homosexual throughout their adult lives. So the study also reports 10 percent of American males surveyed were more or less exclusively homosexual for at least three years uh, between the ages of 16 and 55 in the five to six years range, and seven percent of single females ages 20 to 35, and four percent of previously married females ages 20 to 35, were given a rating of three. And again, that's about equally homosexual and equally heterosexual, bisexual, if you will. Two to six percent of females ages 20 to 35 were more or less exclusively homosexual in experience and response, and one to three percent of unmarried females ages 20 to 35 were exclusively homosexual in experience and response so i already shared like i said some conclusions that i drew from these statements and these findings does anyone have anything that they want to add and anything that they want to share about what they think about the results
3: well i as i said before i do identify as a heterosexual woman but also as i said prior to our podcast like i am like physically attracted to women i when there's a beautiful woman there's a beautiful woman, there's a beautiful man, there's a beautiful man. And I hate the term girl crush. That's seriously one of like my least favorite words because gender has nothing to do with it. When you're crushing on someone, you're crushing on someone. So this report makes a lot of sense to me. I definitely wouldn't say I'm bisexual in the sense that I don't identify with that oppression and I am privileged in terms of sexuality and I don't identify with that oppression, as I said. But again, that makes a lot of sense to me. As someone who unapologetically, when there's a beautiful woman, oh my gosh, she is so gorgeous. Oh my goodness, what would it be like? Yeah.
2: In the last almost 70 years, how do you think our attitudes towards queerness changed since this study was published? This was published in 19, is it 53 or 54? Um...
0: I think we've stopped seeing sexuality as something that's biologically set in stone. Like, if you're a woman, you must love a man. If you're a man, you must love a woman. Like, obviously, it's not as black and white as we would like to believe it is. And this study kind of proves that. And I think the last 70 years has given kind of a societal proof of that in and of itself.
5: I think I would be curious to see... um how like because I think a lot of people who answer this probably aren't people that would actually say this openly to someone, you know, like this is probably a very private thing to them. Like I really doubt that a lot of these people would proudly proclaim that they might have dibbled and dabbled in the homosexual um, or bisexual even experiences. So I'm so I think more I think I'm less curious about whether we have the same perceptions as the study indicates, and more curious if, um, how they answered it and if they would answer it the same way today, would they be private about it or would they be public about the way they answered it?
1: Uh, I think that, and I think that this is like, just to clarify, this is like a very subjective, uh, kind of impression that I got like growing up in Germany and talking to other people about sexuality. I think that when I was a child and when I was like really young, um, the dialogue about bisexuality and even pansexuality was very different in that uh, we would see a lot of, like, bi erasure, for instance. Like, uh, if someone likes a a woman, likes a woman, where she can't like men, she has to be a lesbian. Uh, From from my subjective, like, impression that I got, that seemed to be, like, the overall sentiment, whereas today, um, it's like, uh, you can like uh, a person of this and that gender, but you can still uh, have like heterosexual relationships as well. And I feel, uh, or at least like with the person I, or with the people I have the dialogue with, it's gotten a bit more differentiated, which is a good thing. But, uh, we still have a long way to go. Like for instance, when, when people bring up the term pansexuality, uh, I think many people would be wondering like, what's the difference, uh, to bisexuality and even though from what I've heard it's it's still intrinsically very much different
4: I think a lot of people have brought up good points about like how the Kinsey scale can be really empowering to a lot of different people however people ha- over I, I've noticed that over the past decades there have been people kind of expanding on it or critiquing it as not quite representing sexuality as we, we've, like, gained new knowledge about it. Um, some other versions that I can think of are the uh, split attraction model, which is basically the idea that people have romantic attraction and sexual attraction, and they don't necessarily line up. So... For instance, you could be somebody who is bisexual, but homo romantic, and what that means is that they'll they'll have se- sexual attraction for multiple genders, but they only have romantic attraction for same sex partners, or the opposite of that. And um, th- this scale can be very useful both for the bi community and also for the asexual community when trying to explain some asexuals don't have any interest in romantic or sexual relationships, but some might have interest in one of the two and it helps to explain somebody might, might be looking for a romantic partner but not for sex, you know? I'm trying to think if there are any. Other. I know that there's um, another type of scale that goes into um, kind of levels of sexuality along with the homosexual versus heterosexual scale. I don't remember what it's called, but I think it's like the red-purple or something like that. Uh, there's just a lot of stuff. So people are like thinking a lot about ways to kind of expand upon this. Sexuality is very, very complicated. But it's it's something that it's fun to put into charts.
2: So someone asked on Andrew's uh, show, isn't queer a derogatory term? And and as I define myself the same way when I was in Utah, someone also said the same thing. They asked me. They said, Don't say that. It's offensive. And I was like, I, I'm not offended, trust <laughs> me. But I I want I liked that they wanted to be an ally. So Tim, you're going to take us through the history of the word queer a little bit, right?
5: Yes, it is. it does have derogatory elements to it. It was originally, I shouldn't say originally, it was co-opted as a derogatory term. The origins of that actually go back to Oscar Wilde. Um, John Douglas, the father of one of the men that Oscar Wilde was sleeping with and then brought Oscar Wilde to trial, ended up using the term snob queers in the trial as a descriptor for gay men and thus that established the term queer as a gay slur and immediately after that um, that's when American newspapers really picked up on it and they started using it to really highlight the strangeness or abnormalness of the queer community because uh, as I'm sure many people know that the original definition of queer is strange or odd or weird so to link the two together um, really links the uh, derogatory feelings that people had towards same sex people at the time and so then that, so that's that was the foundations of it for that. But then after that, this is where it becomes a little more murky, I think, for a lot of people because, it, yes, it was used derogatorily. But then by, like, usually I'd say around the 90s was probably the best time you could really say it was reclaimed. But in around the AIDS epidemic, so 80s, 90s, it became a symbol of anarchy for a lot of people, actually, where they took the word, the term queer because they wanted to have something to say we're in control of the conversation. This is our identity. So they took the word queer and they would make protests and they would flood streets. And they would say, and they would say, and I quote, we're here, we're queer. We will not live in fear. And it was something that you would hear everywhere in during these rallies. And in that it became an empowering term for those um, radical groups, those rebellious groups at the time. And so It really didn't pick up in earnest, like in a mainstream sense, really until the 1990s. That's when Queer Nation wrote on their leaflet for New York Pride, queers read this in all caps, and they handed it out to everyone. And it was talking about um, institutionalized discrimination and countless lives lost from the AIDS epidemic and um, just general discrimination also, and the saying that essentially the leaflet it was saying that gay was not a strong enough term because it's essentially that when you're gay that means you're happy we don't want to say that we're not always we're not always happy We're that's we don't want to be associated with that all the time because it's saying that we can't be angry that we wake up happy it's like no we are angry we are disgusted by that so we're queer so it became a reclaimed word to also um, in addition to just um, talking about the whole queer community, it became a way of saying we're in control of who we are. You can't label us. You tried. We just took flipped it and now we're labeling ourselves and we made it something inclusive. We made it something powerful and we made it something radical.
2: This is a big question and we're talking about a very messy subject. So this is going to be hard to kind of tie neatly into a bow and Rachel, feel free to, to answer this however you see fit, but kind of, as succinctly as possible. How does each of us define our queerness?
0: I think queerness is any kind of um, being on the gender or sexuality spectrum that defies patriarchal norms of what a man, quote-unquote, and a woman, quote-unquote, should be. So even if you're a cisgender straight man who wears makeup and wears a dress, etc. Like in my book, you're queer because you're defying those ideas of what like a man should be like or what a woman should be like, and you're crossing those norms, and that's what queerness is essentially.
4: Lindsay, I adore your definition and agree one hundred percent. Like that's how I think of queer is it's a challenge to the societal way that we think about gender. It's It's taking this idea that, like, let's say if you're born with these genitals, then you have to like pink and you have to get married to a man and have his babies and you have to like this and you have to not like that. You know, like, it's taking that and just saying, you know what, screw that, you know? Like, so, and I think that queer also, what it does is it encompasses a lot of identities and experiences that gay doesn't necessarily describe um, and that there aren't really distinct words that we have to describe them. For instance, um, as I've stated before, like when uh, on the instances where I am romantically or sexually involved with men, other people might think that that's hetero. But for me, because I am a masculine person who has been in relationships with women and brings my very gay experiences to the table, my relationships with men are still queer in my book because certain ideas of how those dynamics should play out are being kind of thrown on their head, if that makes any sense. But yeah.
3: (laughs) It does.
1: So... I think I, I very much agree with the definition that uh, you two have brought up that it's in a way uh, it breaking or something intrinsic to being queer is like breaking some sort of norm. I would like I, a definition that I've heard is like the cis heteronormative uh, norm that society usually expects from people. Uh, so I guess uh, for me personally, what's what's interesting about the the term queer is that, well, as I have already mentioned, like I've been questioning like my, my male identity a bit uh, in the in the past few, uh, not even weeks. <laughs> it's it's fair, I'm fairly new to this stuff. I have I have to admit. So I guess that I, I'm probably gonna have like a, 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 not really a typical gender expression, right? Like I'm trying out new. Like colors uh, in terms of clothing that uh, usually you wouldn't expect men to wear or these straight men to wear uh, based on these uh, weird norms. Probably even stuff like like nail polish. I give that a try. So um, I guess when when it comes to like um, gender identity. Um, I'm still kind of connected to to like a male identity, but I wouldn't say it's a hundred percent deal. So maybe a, like a queer label would be more accurate. I'm I'm still trying to find an answer for that question, but whatever. I guess what's interesting about it, this is that um, uh, I think a lot of people would expect me to be gay, but uh, I'm I'm not really like I I, I don't want to argue in like hundred percent absolutes here, as I already said. But I, I don't I, I'm not gay. I, I'm just not. But queer is a is a term that I think encompasses me as well, which is which is exciting.
2: How would I define my own queerness? I, you know, I I society defined it for me, and they told me I was not normal. Um, They told me I was not. They told me I was queer, and they told me that by how they treated me. And it took me a long time to accept myself, and I grew up with a, a great, great, great deal of shame. Something that like I still try to live through. And, you know, I think differently. I've had a different life experience. And I think that, for me, that's what adds up to making me queer.
5: And I like dudes. <laughs> I think, for me, what would define queerness is twofold. I think first is I generally tend to go by the original meaning of the word, being weird and strange. I think that's a very strong indicative term of what a lot of people actually think of when they think of queer because even a lot of queer people they they don't want to normalize themselves they want to say i am different from people and i do have a distinct thing that's different than the normal groups of people that are out there because i know that my identity was formed differently so i think there's something powerfully powerful about saying i'm weird i'm a bit of a freak i'm a bit strange and you can be empowered by that second fold though i think that being queer is a political identity. I think first and foremost you don't choose to be queer but you choose to be open about your queerness and I think inherent in that choice is a political identity and that it is your responsibility with that political identity to help other people that identify as queer or maybe are not comfortable identifying yet, and supporting them and fostering them and helping the community and others around you that might not have the benefit of being where you are. So I think that, Inherent in making the choice to uh, accept your queerness and to be vocal about your queerness is that you're accepting you have a political identity and you have a political stance. And so you need to reach back. You need to bring the other people who might not be in the same place as you are. You need to bring them to where you are. You need to be supportive of others around you because first and foremost, the queer community was formed as a coalition of different minority groups that really didn't have anything in common with each other, but they knew it it was going to be politically expedient To be together than to be separated. So I think there's, I think what needs to be recognized most by by those who don't identify as queer and those who do is that you that being queer is a political identity and that it's a radical act being queer. It's not it's not always it's not solely about you. It's about what it's about what your choice does for others around you. Because I think you are a social citizen of the world, and so your queerness does change things. It does impact things. And I think that's something that needs to be recognized.
3: From what I've been gathering from all of your really articulate and great definitions of queer is that there's an aspect of consciousness, active participation in a dialogue or even a monologue with oneself on what your identity and queerness means that I personally can't relate to as a straight person because I was told from birth, oh, you're a woman, you're attracted to guys. And I was like, gay. And I mean, I've been oppressed in other ways, most obviously being a 25 year old woman that reads Archie comics without any guilt whatsoever. That's my highest form of oppression, as you can tell from looking at me. But is that correct, that there's some degree of consciousness?
5: Yeah, I think there is a certain consciousness. I think that if, not always though, I think that for I think for the individuals who are most self aware and really are who really want to accept and do something with their queerness, there is a self-awareness there. And there is a conscious thought about, okay, what is, why do I feel different? Why do I feel like I'm not part of everyone else? Why do I feel apart? Because I know that a lot of people, if you talk to them, they do feel that way. And so I think you think about it and you wonder, why is that the case? And some people, they abandon that self-awareness once they come out and they just say, I'm gay. Now I'm part of the community. My job is done. I came out. I'm free. But for a lot of other people, um, myself included, that's not the end of it. Because to be queer is not just to have a sexual difference. It informs other aspects of your life. And so with that, you're always searching for something else. How can I rectify this difference from other people with myself? Or, like I said before, I think the importance of what can I do for others now that I've done this for myself?
1: I think this kind of plays back into like the whole uh, social constructivism argument is that um, when we use these these like queer terms or like ident- gender identity or sexual identity terms, uh, we're usually uh, describing like a phenomena or a sense of identity or a feeling that's existed before, and then we're looking for a term that that suits that, right? Uh, at least that's what I've been been getting from. From like almost anyone I talk to, so um, I I guess it if you don't really think of yourself as any of that, it doesn't it's it's not a label that you would give to yourself. And this is usually how these labels work. Where these are labels that you employ for yourself. So in a situation where someone might not be aware uh, that they could have a queer identity, that's pretty uh, accurate to how they are feeling. At the very least, it's like questionable uh, whether we would be calling them queer because that's kind of like what they have to find out for themselves, right? So in a way, I feel like that's that's how I would argue for queer kind of being socially constructed. And then also what 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 Tim was saying with uh, it being. Also, like a political identity that adds like a whole another layer to it, uh, of of like social constructivism and sense of identity, and in general, like um, I mean, it, it's it's a category that we don't necessarily uh, put ourselves into. Like uh, we don't really have. I guess what I'm saying is that we don't have we don't choose to feel that way, but uh, we we choose the term that fits that fits the most, which is kind of kind of like socially constructed.
4: I I guess uh, I'll just add that like um, the um, mainstream LGBT movement has been kind of increasingly concerned with appearing normal, quote unquote, to um, straight cisgender, to explain cisgender, it's not, not trans, no, (laughs) it's not transgender to um, the mainstream and queer is kind of more about like no we're not normal we're challenging what normal means and we don't want a coca-cola float at our pride parade we want to be thinking about the ways that company like like capitalism like influences gender and sexuality or like stuff like we need we need to be thinking critically about these things instead of just kind of Going along with this um, whole fad that's going on, where a bunch of like companies are cashing in on like, oh, being gay friendly is this new trendy thing. How like the movement is like so focused on marriage and the military instead of thinking, wow, what are these institutions and what do they have to do with oppressing? the LGBT community and, and other people, of course. So gay, as in, the, as in the gay movement, is yes, we want to be married just like you. Queer is what does marriage mean? Let's think about this.
1: All right, so um, kind of moving on from our definition of queerness or or our definition of uh, gender and sexual identity, um, what we're going to do in the next section is take a look at how homosexuality has evolved in comics through the ages. Or rather, first off, before we take a look at all these modern uh, kinds of representations in in superhero comics or comics in general, uh, first, well, we wanted to do was take a huge step back to the 1930s and uh, uh, 1940s and uh, specifically take a look at these Batman images with with him and Robin in bed together and also attending together that uh, we included in the in the podcast script So uh, the panelists have uh, like you as the panelists you have the images before you can uh, anyone or uh, does anyone want to uh, explain to our listeners what is included in these images?
5: Yeah, I can explain it. Um, Thank you, Tim. So <laughs> the first one's like, it's like a weird thing. I'd say B- Bruce Wayne is on the left side of the bed and he he has his arms like behind his head very casually. And he looks more like he just woke up like morning after sleeping with someone, but in a more sexualized way. Robin is sleeping next to him with like leaning against one arm, smiling like a boy. He looks a little more just like he was sleeping with a friend. Like, it. so it's a weird feeling of difference there because it looks like, because I mean, it's going to look sexual because men in the 1940s were always sexualized and like showing off their sexuality, but then Robin looks really boyish. So it looks a little predatory, I guess. Yeah. That's the best way of putting it. And um, I'll read the dialogue from it. So it says morning and it begins like any other routine morning in the lives of millionaire Bruce Wayne and his ward, Dick Grayson. And then Bruce Wayne says, Ah, that was good sleep. Come on, Dick, a cold shower, a big breakfast. And then down to the cave to repair the Batmobile. I'm way ahead of you, said Robin. So to me, it's like it's both wholesome and kind of creepy at the same time.
3: <laughs> Absolutely. Um, I'm sorry, Tim. But especially like the peephole framing of the two, like you only see them through this circular lens. So it's almost like in those haunted mansions where you look for the portrait. It's like, either way I feel like a predator, like Chris Hansen needs to come and talk to me because I just don't feel clean.
5: Exactly. I think, yeah, that's a good thing you picked you mentioned next. I forgot to. Yeah. It's like, it has a little weird people vibe to it. And then the second one, that one gets a little stranger because um, they're both laying on tanning beds, um, staring out the window and there's the bat signal going off. But, they're laying on these tanning beds with only like a thin towel just covering their like not even their midsection, just their butts slash if you're looking at Robin, his um, genital area. So like it's just like that one is even more suggestive, I would say. But the way they draw Robin in that one, he's a little more muscular than he is in the bed scene. So it, but it's still he's still very boyish looking. So it's a little stranger. Like it, I think it just kind of elevates the weirdness, but I think what's most strange about it is that we don't think that it was intentionally written to be in a specifically homosexual context. So you, so it makes you wonder why was it done that way? Like, why did it end up coming that way? Is it something that we later depicted that way? Or is it just that those homosexual thoughts were kind of like running in the zeitgeist at the time? And this was an okay thing to draw.
1: So uh, I guess we kind of already got into this, but uh, what sort of feeling does like this this sort of uh, semi-representation conjure up for you? And also you can feel free to, to answer what you imagine parents would be thinking of these images, because I think there's a lot to unpack.
5: If I was a parent and I saw my child reading this, I would... I'd be questioning it. I think I feel the same as I do now, not being a parent where I'd be concerned, not, not in the sense of like, I'm concerned about homosexuality, but in this case, more concerned about pedophilia because he adopted Dick Grayson. So it's less to me, like the homosexual aspect isn't as critical so much as the pedophilic one, because I think... But I, and I think from a historical standpoint, that's interesting because I know in a lot of cases, um, pedophilia and homosexuality have been linked to each other, and I think this is just another case of that happening. Where you're saying, "Oh, look, these are this older man's preying on this younger guy that he adopted." Like this is clearly predatory behavior, but it's masked in a very wholesome lens, and I, so I think that's something to unpack. And yeah, I don't know. There's it's just a very unsettling. It's, Set of images. Another thing to add is that these are heroes. So it's another strange thing that you're linking two things that society has historically despised and putting them on your heroes. You know, that's also an interesting thing.
3: What I'm trying to figure out in the topmost first panel, where the two beds are, is there like a gap of yellow wall in between? Because, like, I know I in that time period, you couldn't show a married couple in bed together. It's
0: like they took two twin beds and pushed them together. So it's like, <laughs> it's not, it's not really gay. It's just like, we wanted to have a
3: real sleepover right now. They left room for Jesus. Exactly. Beautiful. But it's like, it reminds me of the Brady Bunch or the fact that you couldn't even show heterosexual couples. Like, like, why are you mirroring you. that? <laughs>
5: Yeah. No. It's like like it yeah, like Lindsay said, it looks like they just like shoved two beds together. I'm like, there's one like you could say they want just to just have like a slumber party with like a sea of bed there. I mean, who doesn't want a whole room just of bedding? But I think given the weird people nature that you pointed out, Rachel, it's like it makes it a little more insidious, I guess, and impure.
1: So I think we can all agree that this has uh, even though that might not have been like the artistic intention which we probably can't tell this has like a lot of controversial and uh, possibly even problematic implications uh, especially in that time. It's it's actually, it's images to give some historic context, it's images like this that caused the book to be written and published in 1954 uh, which is called Seduction of the Innocent and this book basically made claims that comic books were causing delinqu- delinquencies in minors and so after that a, a congressional hearing was held and the comics industry was uh, it, it's fair to say oh. that it was brought to its knees basically the the comics code authority as we know it was established um so, as we kind of make our way through the decades and into the 1980s, uh, let's just keep in mind these rules uh, that the Comic Code Authority established, which prohibited gay characters from being in mainstream comics. And I quote, uh, illicit sex relations are neither to be hinted at or portrayed. Violent love scenes as well as sexual anomalies, are unacceptable. The treatment of love romance stories shall emphasize the value of home and the sanctity of marriage.'" Uh, sex perversion or any inference to the same is strictly forbidden. All right, so um, I think we should uh, move on and be specific with uh, Hulk number 23, which is published in 1980 uh, by Marvel Comics during the Jim Shooter era. And uh, I'd love for someone or uh, some of you to explain the scene that we we're talking about and for us to discuss like our initial reactions to it.
5: Yeah, so I've read this several times because this, I think, is a very harrowing um, series of panels to really have in a comic. So what happens is you see Bruce Banner at a YMCA just um, walking to the showers, and there's two gay guys just talking about they're going to find someone to hook up with, and they're leaning against the wall, shooting the breeze. Bruce Banner walks by just wearing a towel after working out, and they're eyeing him up, and so he goes in the shower, and they follow him into the shower, and what happens is essentially they aggressively try to rape him and he explicitly says several times that he does not want this he's telling them you don't want to do this because i can't control myself he's not saying he's the hulk but he's saying that if you he's like don't do this you're gonna get hurt and don't hurt me and then he runs out of there thankfully and he then breaks down after and he's wondering why such a horrible thing almost happened to him and he's so lucky and so grateful that he was a lucky one that he was able to escape that fate
2: if only the x-men knew during world war hulk what hulk's weakness was and it was gay people (laughs) um it prohibited him from becoming hulk uh so all of world war hulk and didn't need to happen if only north star was around and i just want to say That that scene is really offensive and disgusting because I feel like that's what heterosexual people back when I was a young guy, oh my God, I'm old, um, but back then was perceived as. And it's like, no one wants to have sex with you. I don't know what else to say. You know, you're heterosexual, awesome. Like, there, f- I get it. Cool. I mean, I don't want to have sex with you any more than you want to have sex with me. And there's stuff that people say. Like, I even have um, a, a heterosexual friend who stayed with me for New York Comic Con. Hope that's not calling him out um, last year. And he was like, you know, and he didn't know we'd been friends for like ten years. And I guess you know, I finally got around to telling him. And you know, he was like, "Oh, we'll be fine as long as you don't jump my bones." So it was kind of serious. And it was like, dude. Like, I don't want to have sex with you, and like if I did, I would have tried and succeeded, but I don't want to have sex with you, because you're as gross as you find me, I find you likewise as gross, and uh, I'm not desperate, I'm not whatever, and I feel like this scene in Hulk speaks to the worst of the gay stereotype, and I sincerely hope that Jim Shooter has evolved since then.
5: Yeah. I think to portray homosexuals and just the queer community in a villainous light in such a villainous light without any characterization, just grotesquely placed in that way is reprehensible, I think. And it's a shiny example of why we're doing this podcast.
0: I think mainstream media has a tendency to represent um, people who are oppressed as predators So like if we compare this to the way that like black men are represented in mainstream media or have been represented in mainstream media it's the idea of like oh no they're the ones who are going after other people and it's the same way as like gay men are represented in this comic as if they're like coming on to other people and like like asserting themselves onto other people when that's really not the case and I think a lot of society is built off of portraying people who are oppressed in this way so it's. It's just Mm -hmm. one more example of that, essentially.
2: Rapists. He's calling us rapists. Yes. And um, I just that's disgusting.
0: It's
4: also like from pedophiles to
5: rapists. This is great. It's also like
4: um taking um like a very serious traumatic topic like sexual assault and just kind of like turning it into like a plot device. And I think it's just like outright disrespectful to a number of different like groups of people yes sexual assaults can happen like men on men but it's not necessarily just that's oh that's how gay men are it's like also not like they're this threat to hetero men like that like there's nuance to this discussion that like you can't just throw rape into a comic without really thinking about it. Especially considering, like, how common sexual assault is, especially to women specifically, from straight men. It just seems kind of callous to be like, oh, let's paint sexual assault as this thing that evil gay men do. You know? Like, they have their own reasons for writing this scene that have nothing to do with actually helping sexual assault survivors
2: I don't even really necessarily have a problem with queer people or in this case two gay men being depicted who are feminine being depicted which I just think adds another layer of insult because it's like the femininity in them is what's fucked up the short shorts and the shirt and everything Um, hot pink Um, Yeah, and all that stuff, but it it, like I'm not opposed to a a queer character being a villain I mean for me I'm Chris Claremont knows this Marius knows this very well. I mean I grew up as with Emma Frost as my favorite character And she was not an antihero until later in my life until just before I was starting high school and I thought she was an awesome villain and I thought that she was super fleshed out and you know, I wanted to be like her. I thought I wanted people to think I was hot. I wanted to be super powerful. I wanted to just think and make people hurt so that they would do what I want them to do. And it's not that I. So I, I guess the point that I'm saying is, I don't have a problem with a gay person being a villain. I have a problem with queerness being vilified. And I just wanted to uh, add that.
3: I'm a little confused as what the narrative purpose of that scene is supposed to serve. Because, like, on so many levels that it's just the epitome of unnecessary. I was like, wh- why is this here? Wh- why? I, I like, I'm not even trying to be funny. Like, I don't understand why that is there.
5: It's like in Jurassic World, where the babysitter gets like abducted by the flying dinosaurs. Like they spent how many millions of dollars CGIing the scene that was so gratuitously violent and unnecessary. Granted, I laughed at it. That's I le- gra- I laughed at the ridiculousness of it. This is kind of hard to laugh at the ridiculousness of it. I mean, given from
3: today's stuff. standpoint, but was that supposed to be funny back then? I mean, like I genuinely want to get the shooter guy. And, well, first of all, I want to slap him, but then afterwards, I want to be like, what? I, mean, who, who, I have a
5: feeling it wasn't supposed to be funny, but more just like this is how they saw queer people and specifically homosexual men at the time. This is what they, they're they like. Okay. Like we see homosexual men as predatory as they're going to sleep with your straight guys. And so I think that this is just a very um, cardboard villainous example of them. Cause I think like Justin said that you, it's not that you can't make a homosexual or a queer individual, a villain you can, and you should, if it fits the narrative properly, but it shouldn't fit an offensive narrative. It should. It should make sense.
1: All right. So I think that's that's a really interesting question we got going. There. Do you think that we? I mean, we've been talking a lot of uh, a lot about how um, this kind of representation of, of uh, queer people in this very negative, uh, very weird I- ideological light uh, has been used to to further like this narrative. Do you think that? Uh, this kind of speaks for how mainstream American society uh, looked at queer people by that time in 1980. And on the flip side of that, uh, we also read Alpha Flight uh, issue 106, where North Star comes out as gay, which is only 12 years later in 1992. Um, do you think that uh, that's kind of a, a reflection of how in this short period of time, things have changed in terms of uh, attitude towards queer, uh, queer people?
2: On the one hand, it is what it is, and I'm happy that we have grown from this moment in Hulk 23 in 1980. At the same time, I frankly feel rage for the fact that Dark Phoenix Saga was coming out at this time, and uh, you have Jean Grey, literally a response to second wave feminism according to Chris Claremont. Um, You have Mouse coming out around this time, a little bit before. So, you know, you know, now we're seeing Jews being looked at more three-dimensionally. And I, I want to say, look, I mean, I don't want to come down on the writer because I don't know what he was thinking or if this was some kind of mandate, although I think he was CEO, so I don't think so, or editor-in-chief or something. But I think it speaks volumes for how people felt. And I think if you look at like stuff before like Night of the, was it Night Evil Dead or something like that? Was that, was that movie? Living Dead. Night of the Living Dead? Was that the one that had a, a black actor in it? Yes. Yeah, and it was like a huge deal because I remember my father was talking to some people and playing devil's advocate, and he's like, oh my God, this guy's here to rape her, and blah, 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 because that's what he was saying, that that's what people were thinking when this movie came out and how it shattered stereotypes by having him be one of the heroes of the film, or if not the hero of the film, right? But I think that... I, 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 it, it pisses me off and I think that that's okay because I, I wish that in, in 1980 we were further and I think my life would have been a lot easier if we were and I think that it is a huge stride that in 1992 Northstar came out as gay I, I remember I was really confused by the comic I, I didn't understand why he was fighting while it happened and it just sort of took kind of the whole point away from me
4: so this was my first time reading that that issue and um and i was just kind of like i honestly thought it was kind of funny because like i felt i felt bad about laughing but it was just so over the top like it felt like this was kind of like a like an after school special sort of like moral lesson of the week. And like Justin was said, they were having this conversation about like a very real topic, which is like how gay people were demonized during the AIDS epidemic and just like weirdly punching each other through the whole thing. And it just, it just kind of made it seem absurd and like removed all humanity from it and it's like i guess the only way that they can have this conversation at that time was if they had to prove their masculinity by punching each other while saying it but i i guess i'm not sure exactly in the context of like the historical context like whether this like what the implication of this comic was. Maybe it was a really good thing I'd, at the time. I don't know. But I'm really glad that we can kind of look back on this today and be like, what the hell was this?
2: I can answer that. It was a good thing at the time. And it, it, it was good that it was even there, period, as ridiculous as it was. Uh, it's not. I, I'm not sure if it wasn't an Eisner. <laughs> I don't want to say it definitely did it, but it probably did not
0: Yeah, I actually... I don't know. I found this issue actually really touching, even after the fact, because it was kind of addressing the hypocrisy of like AIDS in general and of the idea of like, oh, no, if a child gets AIDS, it's okay. It's like this really tragic thing. But if a gay person gets AIDS, we're not going to address it. And if we're thinking about it in the context of like the 80s and the 90s, like the government did not address the AIDS crisis because it was only affecting like gay people and people of color. So, I mean, I understand that them adre- them talking about it and battling at the same time is a little bit ridiculous, but at the same time, it's such a real thing. And they were talking about something that was so relevant and is still so relevant because really we don't care, like, as a society about things that affect gay people or affect black people or affect brown people unless it really affects white people. And that's what that comic was essentially about.
2: Do you feel as though all types of people on the spectrum of queerness are represented and represented well in comics? And why or why not? And please give an example from our reading. Rachel.
3: Well, I can give an example not from our reading but from my soul, which would be Archie Comics. I personally feel that no, not every type of person or sexuality from the spectrum is best represent, represented. In particular, asexuality. There was a lot of fanfare when in Jughead number four, I believe, in the Chip Zdarsky, the recent revival of Archie, that Jughead came out as asexual. When really, if you look at that panel, it's Kevin Keller, who was Archie's first LGBT character to come out in Veronica number 202 with Dan Parent. Um, He's the one that said, well, you're not attracted to me because you're asexual. And to me, that's very... It's not as bad as Jean Grey outing Iceman, but still you're outing someone to the reader if not to the character. And even if Jughead does reaffirm that later, who are you to say that? You're not the like, you know, gatekeeper of queerness. We can't have that. That's not representation. That's toxic to have that representation there. And even now with Riverdale, there's been a lot of controversy among fans of the Archie television show and that Jughead isn't asexual because he's dating Betty Cooper, when in fact, there are quite a few asexual people. Like, you can be ace and date another person. Asexuality is an umbrella term. So to have that kind of like and or mentality in comics and then seeing that perpetuated in larger culture... It's a problem.
2: I mean, I know that these characters are owned by a corporation who is Archie Comics, which is Archie Comics, and they feel like they want to maximize the uh, revenue potential of these characters. But what a missed opportunity to do so, even, even for the corporation, um, to not explore the character's asexuality. I mean, like you said, the character, it's an umbrella term, which I didn't even know until just now. And a Jughead can still date Betty on the show. And just think of like all the conversations that could happen I mean, look, all the teaching moments for people like me who didn't know about what you just said. And the drama on the show that would ensue from that. And I think that that would be awesome to watch.
3: Yes, absolutely. I completely agree. Not to mention that it's a retcon, certainly, but it hasn't been played through in the other Archie books. This was in a side book, Jughead Number four, which is, again, very popular. You have Chip Zdarsky and Erica Henderson of Squirrel Girl fame working on it. There's the ones that started it. But that still hasn't been carried out yet in the other Archie themes. It felt like a very safe, marketable move. A headline move, even, if I can go there. In the comics? Yeah, for Jughead to be asexual to some degree. I think it's progressive. I think it's wonderful. But to not see that carried through or given the seriousness throughout The other representations of Jughead, who is in all the other series, he's a major character, is seriously questionable to me.
4: I'd like to add on to kind of the lack of representation for certain groups. I think that comics um, writers and creators are starting to be more aware that, like, the LGBT community needs representation. And certain groups, they, like have some of an idea of what to do with, but then they're like, oh, we should also probably include, let's say the T because that's a part of LGBT, but we don't know anything about it. So you have kind of like transgender characters that like aren't really fully explored or are just or or it's just kind of like thrown in there. But like in a really awkward manner, and while trans isn't a sexual orientation, it's still like it's still a part of the community, and it still can like transness can affect sexuality as well. Some of the comics that we read, for instance, um, why the last man, while being progressive for lesbian characters. Said some extremely transphobic comments and um, such as like she male he she like stuff like that and they like they mentioned that there are people in this world who use testosterone but don't go into specifics on that and don't explore that to any degree whatsoever. That is
2: explored later. To be fair,
4: oh, it is okay. Sorry, I don't. I haven't actually. Like I only read the the required reading. Yeah, for that. no, totally. Okay, not. Um, okay. I'm glad that they go into that because I was kind of like weirded out by the fact that it was that this comic was so progressive on one level, but so kind of like backwards in another level. It, same can be said for for Love Is Love. Um, there are some really like nuanced and honest depictions within that within that anthology of lgbt people and then you also have let's say this this one comic where it's like a wedding and the the main character is this like older man whose son is getting married to a trans woman, and he is trying to show his support at the wedding. And it's portrayed as it's supposed to be like this really like positive, like inspiring moment of like him getting past his like bigoted views or whatever. But the thing is, like he um, calls her, he calls his um, daughter-in-law by her birth name, or as the community would call it, a dead name. And this is like an extremely important moment in her life. And he is just casually bringing up both something that's probably extremely traumatic for her and also a name that is going to loom over the heads of every single person at that event. And they're going to be thinking about oh, that was her old name. Do we say it? Do we not say it? And it's going to be haunting her even though it's something that's not a part of her identity anymore. And uh, personally, I just found that to be extremely rude and insulting. And the and the the comic made it seem like he was being progressive even for saying this because he he's like so on board with it or whatever and you know like it's just it, i just thought it was it's really bizarre that we've kind of we've we've gotten some good representation in some areas and then we've just got some just really careless stuff in other areas
0: um, going off of what Madeline had to say, I think we have a very one-dimensional understanding of transgender people in general. Because we have, when we see transgender people represented in media of any kinds, so we see people who who more or less pass as cisgender or have go- undergone all of the surgeries and hormonal treatments they possibly can. But in reality, that doesn't really reflect the worldview or desire of. Every transgender person on the planet like there are transgender people who do not want to pass this gender There's transgender people who don't want to have surgeries They don't want to have hormonal treatments and we don't have those kind of representations. We don't have that
3: nuance And um, if I could just um, jump back to love is love Um as madeline said like I also had a quite a few issues with some of the stories presented in there Including once again with archie That was probably one of my least favorite stories was the one with kevin keller where they talked about how he went to the Pulse nightclub and that's where he discovered his sexuality. I mean, it's an interesting retcon, but I was like, we're trying to like talk about real people who died in this horrible massacre and you're bringing this fictional character into this. It felt- Wait,
2: that is so f***ed up. Yep. <laughs> and people are pissed at Secret Empire. I clearly didn't get to Love is Love, I'm not going to lie. But... People are pissed at Secret Empire and that happened. That, I mean, I, I'm not saying one can't happen and one and the other can't. Right. But wow. Like, can we have outrage for this as well?
3: Oh, I have all the outrage for that. Yes. It's very problematic. And I imagine it was well-intentioned. But at the very same time, it's like, no, this is extremely inappropriate. It just happened. Yeah. Yeah, and you're trying to raise money and funds in order to help with like, you know, heal this community. Why are you bringing this fictional character saying that they like, well, it was one of their first gay experiences living in Orlando and going there with his boyfriend? I mean, it's it's cute, but it's like these people actually died. These are real life people. You can't insert a character into this. That's wrong on a lot of levels. Yeah, even worse, there's the
0: Batman comic where Batman is in Pulse nightclub after the tragedy and there are bodies all over the floor and it's like you literally see them like bloodied and it's just like that is the epitome of disrespectful and the way that like gay bodies, queer bodies are disrespected on a regular basis in media is just like, I don't know how you could, I don't know how you can make that comic and think it was appropriate.
2: I just don't think you would show not bodies of nine eleven people who have jumped out of the towers right after, because they have a family, they're married, you know what I am saying? And I feel like that kind of thought process goes with it, but it's kind of okay. Like it's just so subliminally okay for the people writing and and doing the art to not notice that it's problematic, and it scares me a little bit because it yeah. scares me that people are so can be uh, that we're that we're not as far with it as I would like it to be.
4: Yeah, there's kind of a sen- an essence of, like, kind of tragedy porn with some of Love is Love. Um, and it's something that's a problem in a lot of media, especially, like, some older media, but still definitely is a problem. People kind of capitalize a- a- off of um, these, like, gay romance or trans romance tragedy stories where... Um, like the main characters die at the end or one of them dies at the end. It's like, look at how sad and edgy we are and how realistic this is or whatever, you know, and it's kind of like gets to the point where like those bodies are de- like people are desensitized to the deaths of those people. And it's also just like it's not good. Like when you're a young queer person and like the only representation you can find of people like you is dead people.
2: Laying on the floor in a gay nightclub. Reduced to that being all of who they are, I feel.
3: It's fetishistic. It really is, as Madeline was saying. And it kind of highlighted, that's one of the aspects, the reverse of that, is what I liked in DC Bombshells. It was this alternative universe without necessarily men, but you still had these queer relationships shown in such a positive light, in a large sense. And that was nice to see, at least for me, it wasn't all just like, obviously, it's a struggle. It's a real life struggle being a queer person that needs to be addressed as it is in Fun Home. We need the downside, but we also need some of the light. Like, why can't we have these happy portrayals that don't necessarily represent what it is to be queer in America, but it's still just like a positive, nice thing to have. I really appreciated that about DC Bombshells.
4: I would argue that DC Bombshells is actually more realistic than people give it credit for. Um, Have you ever checked out the documentary uh, before Stonewall? No, I haven't. Um, So basically what actually happened in real life was that during World War II, the men all went off and there was a lot of like gay stuff going on in the military with the men. I'll get back to that in a second. But then you had like factories and all these jobs being run mainly by women and it was and there were very few men around and women were free to like wear pants and like dance with each other and there were all these kind of like different social interactions going on just because the space was different. It wasn't just like the women were all in the house waiting for their husband. It was they were out like interacting with each other and so there was a huge lesbian community that was thriving during that time and while there was also a gay male community going on um, overseas, during the 50s after the war there was this very strong effort by the by the far right who were like wow we've got to get all these women out of the business so that we can get the men back in and re and reassert like con- like christian conservative values so there was like the these very like systematic campaigns uh, like through television and advertisements to try to get the women to feminize um and that's where you get like the the pearl necklaces and like all that stuff like really came into play there uh, but you also had like gay people around that time were like trying to figure out like like we had we had this there's this taste of what queer communities could be like. And so a lot of people who before were just kind of stranded in whatever area they they were born in and like were in all sorts of rural areas like now knew that there were other people like them. So they started congregating to cities. And then you started having like gay communities like popping up in cities. There is a lot that happened after that but Basically, what I'm saying is like bombshells, like it's I mean, it's it's fictional, but it is depicting like a different time in American history that American history hasn't been always as heterosexual as we make it out to be.
2: Would you say it was satirizing that time?
0: Um. Yeah, a little bit, I think. I don't... Sorry. I don't remember the name of the movie, but there's that movie that it's like, no crying in baseball, and it's the women who play softball, and it's A like... A league of oh. their own. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. I oh, it's sorry. so amazing. Tom no, Hanks no. is in it, I yeah. think. No, I don't know. Yeah. But... Gina um, Davis,
2: Madonna, Rosie O'Donnell.
0: That's... Oh. Pretty much how the comic opens. So it is definitely a satire because it's playing off of like that that like known cultural knowledge of like, well, there are no men, so women have to play the sports, and it's kind of like the implication of like there are no men, so women have to, dot 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 dot. And you see all the things that they're doing as a result of there being no men in World War II, because they're all away.
2: In terms of who on the queer spectrum is not being represented well. I'm with Lindsay and Madeline, and I, I definitely feel trans people are not. And I feel like, especially if you, I mean, you know, I don't want to veer into television and all this stuff. I'm always telling people to stay on point. But aside from the show Transparent, which I think is even one end of that spectrum, I feel like trans women are often sexualized, fetishized, play a small role. I also feel like, in terms of what Rachel was talking about, it is nice to see a nice, healthy relationship. And while I abhor how Gene Grey outed Iceman, I did think that next issue where he met that inhuman boy, Romeo, was kind of cute when he was going to all the bar stuff. I thought it was kind of cute. I would like to see what's going on in the mind of a trans person or a queer person on the spectrum about their queerness that is not about romance.
0: Yeah, I don't think we get a lot of representation of people who are in the middle of trying to figure out like what they are and how they identify. It's more like set in stone of like, I'm this and y'all have to deal with it as opposed to like, what are the dynamics of questioning those things?
3: I think quite a few of these queer narrative stories or queer characters in comics focus on a very heteronormative aspect, like gay marriage, or joining the military, or having children. It's a very straight narrative that's an easy pill to swallow in our society, and that's not representing the entire spectrum of a queer existence. And I think
0: part of being inherently queer is baking is like breaking apart that binary of like you're one thing or you're another thing it's about being existing in like like the medium of like possibilities as opposed to being gay or straight or trans or not trans and i again there's not really space for that
2: are we in a smart queer bubble i guess my question is there's people all over the world who listen to us if someone in mid-Ireland right now, I don't know what you even call it, where abortion is illegal, where, for even in cases of rape and incest, and I'm not judging, I'm just pointing out, and also where you couldn't get a divorce until 1996, the year before I graduated high school. I'm just playing devil's advocate, obviously, by asking this question. Are we alienating them by our demands of comics, where they are right now? Of course, they should be better, but should we celebrate where they are
0: absolutely um i think even at the most basic level media that represents queer people is giving people the language to address the way that they're feeling so even if it is just like the most basic surface level representation of queer people like that representation matters to people who are in areas who otherwise would not get access who, who probably don't even know a queer person. So I think it's important that we don't, like, reduce that to the things that we think are wrong with that representation.
4: I, I just really like critiquing things that I like as well as dislike. So for me, like, engaging with a text and saying, hmm, this did this well, but here's how it could be better, like, isn't saying, oh, I don't like it, this is terrible, just scrap the whole thing. I think that it is important to say that there are definitely... Certain things going on that are amazing, you know, like we don't I I don't think we have any of this in the required reading. But like Boom Studios is doing some really good stuff with LGBT representation Um, like they're mainly they have um, they have a lot of like comics for children. Um, and they, they do a lot of like spin-off comics for Cartoon Network, which has become very weirdly lesbian friendly lately. Um, Boom is doing um, their own comics like um, the Backstagers, which has gay characters and it has, um, and it has a trans man, which trans people who aren't sexualized hetero trans women. Are very hard to come by so that's exciting you have jonesy which has um uh, queer women of color which is also exciting it's not just white queer people like there's there's a lot of like good stuff going on and i just get really excited like impressed when i read certain comics because i know like a few years ago these these things wouldn't be possible and like when I was a kid, like, these just weren't things that you talked about. So I'm really interested in how kids and, like, like elementary schoolers reading comics are, like, talking about LGBT stuff right now. Like, that's something that, like, I don't have any access to what they're saying, but I'm, I'm just curious about it.
3: Well, I can't personally relate to being able to see, like, my sexuality in comics because as a straight person, that's, like, what, 99.9%. Um, I know it's important for me as an ally to see that because I wasn't raised to be an ally. I grew up in the Catholic school system, and I grew up around very conservative, rigid mentality. I was not an ally when I was younger, quite frankly, even though I preached trying to be accepting, just certain my attitudes and my actions were not always that of an ally, and I'm not proud of that. But being able to see the humanity... Of these characters and to be like, oh, wait, you're not the other in that sense is really important, not just for LGBT people, but I would argue for everyone.
2: And I would say, I think right now I'm having sort of a eureka moment. And I was like, this is what Comicsverse is all about. We're using comics as a platform to discuss issues, in this case, gender and sexuality, to make the world a more tolerant place. And I'm really excited about that. And I hope that people who... Are a little skeptical listen to everything that Madeline, Lindsay, and Rachel just said you don't have to know a queer person to have a more open mind you just have to know that they're out there <laughs> and uh, if you listen to what I said earlier about the Kinsey Report it's pretty much, it's quite a lot of people be open to where we're coming from I guess is what I want to say, be open to where we're coming from I think parents listening to this we, we do, we don't have, I don't know if we have a lot of parents, I assume some of them are I don't want my kids to read stuff with gay people in it it doesn't matter i'm pro gay or whatever they're gonna say but i don't want my kids to read it who are 10 12 14 what do we say to them
4: well i first realized that i was bi when i was in sixth grade and before then i mean i was still i was definitely exhibiting gender stuff that wasn't considered normal and i was getting picked on in school for it You know, and so, like, I think people have this idea that, like, LGBT people are, like, adults when they first realize and or that everything that LGBT people do is adults in nature. And that's just not true. Um, I mean, a lot of queer people start thinking about this stuff when they're kids and, you might not be thinking about your kid as being LGBT or as having friends that are LGBT, but that might be the case. And even if they're not like they need to be like, it's, it's good to start engaging with this topic because it's going to come up whether or not you talk to them about it or not. And it's better to hear it from a comic that's positive positive than from some jerk on the playground who's, like, calling people F.A.G., you know?
2: I was four when I started experiencing same-sex attraction. So I think it would have been cool to see that there are people like me. And I hope this doesn't derail, because I know some people had some stuff to add. But I remember when Caitlyn Jenner transitioned into who she is now. And I was reading an article on Breitbart, that a friend of mine had posted. A friend from high school who was very pro-LGBT, pro, pro LGBT, according to her, and very open-minded and travels, uh, which I, people use as an excuse to be open-minded. I know a lot of people who don't travel who are pretty open-minded. I know a lot of people who travel who are major assholes, so let's just put that out there. Still, there was a line in it. He's like, oh, my kid wants to be a dragon. I'm not turning him into a dragon. But there's a difference between, like, I remember telling my dad, oh, I feel like a cat today. There's a difference between feeling like a cat and then exhibiting traits that are queer and embracing those. And um, I have a friend I probably shouldn't say her name, but she has three kids now. And when her son was her first kid, and I guess he had picked up her shoes and he's like, What about these? Can I wear these? And she's like, If you want to, go for it. And she's like, If you want to wear my dress, you can wear that too. And he was like, Nah. No thanks. You know, and and it was something she felt like she needed to give him the opportunity to explore if he had those feelings. And I think that I, I just felt like I needed to say those two things.
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, this is polarizing as hell, but I've been reading a lot about like authoritarian governments, given our political situation in 2017. Um, and the way that language is used to cripple the way people think about things, So even thinking about, like, let's say George Orwell's 1984 and like how the language used in that is so limited and the language people are used to think about things are so limited. Like when when we're advocating for giving children access to media that is queer, we're not trying to make them queer. We're just simply trying to give them the tools to express themselves as opposed to converting them to something. And really, you're doing your children a service, and you're going to be able to have a better relationship with your kids if they can say, hey, this is how I'm feeling, as opposed to having to try to parse together those words to express those things.
3: When I hear a question like that, like or a statement, I don't want my kids to read about stuff like this, my like, first response is always to ask, what's the worst thing that could possibly happen if your kid comes across a queer character in a comic? Like They'll get confused, they'll say. They'll get confused. Well, then why don't you have a discourse with your child or have other people talk to your child? I mean, this book isn't supposed to be a substitute for parenting your own child, quite frankly. I mean, like, what really could happen? Your kid finds out their sexuality and your kid can possibly have a smoother transition because they can find somebody they relate to. Or even if they're not queer, they find a character that they like and relate to. Guess what? People
2: are different than me. Why would that be so bad for a child to think that?
3: Right. I never really understand a statement like that because what are you thinking is the worst case scenario? Because what you think is the worst case scenario might be the best thing that could ever happen to any other child.
2: Do you think hiring more queer creators will have a more positive impact on storytelling?
3: Yes.
0: Simple question, right? I mean, I think queer people are creative as hell because they, they've, they exist in a way that is thinking outside of a box. So, I mean not that inherently queer people are more creative than straight people or cis people but like they've been they've programmed their brains in a way to think about things that are different than other people and I mean we can only benefit from that as a society I think
2: I just want to say Lindsay I wish you would stop saying things I feel no I'm kidding but I love it no but you really are which is really cool and so much more eloquently than I ever would Rachel
3: no, I completely agree. I think any group that is oppressed or made the other will have intrinsically their own unique voice, and those artistic contributions are so essential to enriching our own. I'm just saying, as a black person, you're welcome from Motown. Absolutely.
2: As Thank a you. Puerto Rican, you're welcome for Ricky Martin, and as a gay person. <laughs> <laughs> Live in La Vida Loca, baby. Yeah,
4: so I, I just want to like kind of go into um, trees for a sec. Um so um they're leafy so this this comic um does a lot of really cool stuff it's a sci-fi story about these like kind of eldric abomination alien trees and stuff like that and um so part of this the story is that like there's like this um this like cisgender tree boy
2: <laughs> all right i'm gonna shut up <laughs> There's a cisgender tree. Uh, it's called trees. Why are there humans in it? I'm so confused. Like, I thought it was... I mean, it's called trees. Are there? Is it about trees? About sitting under them? Like, I don't understand. So, so I shutting this, I'm shutting so up. I'm actually going to unplug this because I don't trust myself.
4: So this guy, like, has a crush on this girl and then, like, finds out that she's trans. And um, the whole thing is, like, they're trying to, like be to like have good representation but at the same time it's very like manic pixie dream girl like she's going to like teach him how to like open up and like be free about sexuality and like and then there's like a whole like really awkward conversation where he's just kind of like talking about her to like her uncle or i don't even know like some like old relative and they're just like being all like yeah this will be good for you and that'll and it's like she's not even a part of it she like although at the at the end of that it's revealed that the uncle is also trans which i did think was nice because it like it shows that like you can be old and be lgbt specifically trans and like that's really good to show but the, the way that they it just, the whole thing felt like it was very self-serving for straight people. And they call the character by, but in a way that's kind of, like, invalidating that this is a chick that he's with, you know? like I mean, yeah, he was, like, in an orgy, but, like, I feel like they just... It felt like it was very, like oh, well, I can't be straight now that I slept with a trans woman because she's not really a woman, you know? Mm
3: -hmm. Like,
4: that was kind of the vibe I got from it. But um, at, at the same time, like, there are good things about it. Like, she does say, like, she points out to him, like, you can't tell who is cis and who is trans just by looking at them, which is an important point, and, like, there's, like, other stuff that's, like, good about the comic. I just felt like it needed to be brought up that, like, it's not the best in terms
0: of representation, but it's trying. I love trees, to be quite honest. Um, and, of, I mean, of course, not to invalidate your point, Madeline, but I feel like, of course, there's things about it that are problematic. But Honestly, if... If someone were to take my story and represent it in any kind of way, it would come out cross as like problematic and stereotypical in like a million different ways. I don't know if there's, I mean, I guess there are things to gain about like parsing apart a single representation of a transgender woman and why these things are like confirming and denying your stereotypes. But at the same time, I think that one anecdote in trees as a whole is more of an allegory for like queer space and the way that like, systematic violence against queer people is this omnipresent thing because they're kind of confined to the space that is like a quote-unquote experiment and then they end up all being like murdered after the fact like they're not really people and within this space there are no rules within that space there are no gender sexuality rules anything goes and i think it's important to think about the characters within that context And I think in any other context, yes, it would be problematic that, like, this transgender woman is now this manic pixie girl character, and, like, her body is being used in these ways that are somehow reaffirming this cis man's sexuality, but... I think within, again, within the context of the story, it's more about, like, being in queer space and about how, like, when you're in that queer space, like, those labels are kind of moot. Those labels don't really matter because it's about being yourself and being true to yourself, regardless of what the implications of that are, if that makes sense.
4: And also, I just wanted to bring up Wonder Woman because it's, like, also been mentioned. Um, So, like, Wonder Woman in one volume was confirmed to be bisexual. And also I should point out that Elizabeth Candy was also confirmed to be bisexual, which honestly I was really happy about because I knew about Wonder Woman, but I didn't know about that. I, mean, I didn't know about Elizabeth Candy. Um, but the way Wonder Woman deals with it is just kind of like, in some ways, really good because it's, because it's, it's very casual and also... Not male gaze oriented, Uh, but at the same time, it's kind of like she mentions having a lover, but like there's you don't see it, you just hear it like after the fact. And there was definitely like time that the writers and the artists could have established like some sort of like bond between Wonder Woman and I'm totally forgetting the name of the character, but like it was just kind of like. They were just in a ring and they like fought and that was about it. I, although I do think that it was interesting how like later on in the in the book, like Wonder Woman's trying to like get involved with um oh my god what's his name Steve Trevor, Trevor. yeah yeah Steve Steve Trevor who in in this one is, is um is a man of color and she brings out this like fetishistic like bondage gear because she want like for her. It's like a symbol of strength to be submissive like in the in the culture that she's from like with all of these like other like sapphic women and for him it's like has a completely different connotations like not just because like this is straight society but also like with the racial components like her trying to like chain him down you know and so he's really put off by it and i thought that that was a really interesting dynamic because it like shows by people like when they're navigating relationships there's a lot of different stuff that goes into it they then like necessarily would be in a in a straight relationship and also that both sexuality and race are really important factors to uh, that impact relationships, and, like, you can't just say, oh, I'm, like, enlightened and I'm ignoring these things. Like, you have to be respectful and aware that they are there and that these dynamics and this history is, like, is real, you know?
3: Yeah, I agree. I feel like it wasn't my favorite reading or Wonder Woman reading, but I felt like the intersectional component of that was very unique for a Wonder Woman story that intersectional dynamic as you were speaking, and I was very grateful for that. When I was first reading it, like once I was done initially reading it, my first reaction was like, okay, if you're going to discuss lesbianism or bisexuality, like freaking present it, okay? Like why do we need to codify this? I guess on some aspect it's so normalized that it wouldn't be presented as it would be to us if it became the status quo, but on the one hand it's like, If you're going to go there, go there. Let's not pussyfoot around this, please. Lady love. That's all I want. Lady love. Real pussyfoots. Oh, yes. Josie and the pussyfooting. That was an amazing Mm -hmm. line. Oh, my God. You earned your non-existent paycheck that day. And I also enjoyed Rat Queens Volume 1. I'm a diehard Rat Queens fan, but I think the best representation of sexuality came in the first volume with Betty. Because it was just a fact. Like, you know, you have um, Hannah and Sawyer. They're a couple. And then you just have Betty and her girlfriend. It's just like, yeah, that's just who she is. And it's like a fact. It's like the sky is blue. Betty is with a woman. Okay, then.
4: I liked Betty a lot, especially because she reminded me of a friend of mine who who is lesbian and acts very similarly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I actually, after reading that Rat Queens, I had to message her because <laughs> I was like, I found you.
3: <laughs> Again, volume two of Rat Queens is much more heteronormative. Like Betty's girlfriend does come up. Betty does not have a plot at all in volume two. Granted, there were a lot of um, editorial problems that factored into issue, like, volume two and the second story arc. But it's very much about Hannah and Sawyer and then Dee and her spoiler husband, if you read the end of Rackway. Yes, it's very much more heteronormative, which was deeply shocking considering how, like, queer friendly the first volume is.
4: Also, like... I'm sorry, but like the other rat queens are definitely also like I got heavy gay vibes from. Oh <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like I mean, I just I mean especially um, well like first off like Hannah that the dwarf? Like, no. Oh wait. Oh, who is the dwarf and who is the uh, who is the, um, the, magic- the the magician um, the 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 elf?
3: Oh, the elf is, oh my God, it's so late where we are. Hannah, D, Betty, and the redhead who with the beard. I know who you're talking about. Oh,
4: I just, Violet. Violet. Thank you. Oh, okay. oh that's so going to bother Hannah's So, Hannah's the magician? Violet yeah, elf. the dark magician. Violet's her. whole backstory resembles trans women. And there there's very heavy trans subtext with her character and, and uh but it was all very subtextual like the whole thing about her deciding to shave off her beard and like live in this like all-female community like it, it, it just read very trans to me but it, they were very like subtextual about it and then also um hannah like she just she just seems very very bisexual to me like there's there's nothing like there's no actual evidence but just like Look at her f***ing tattoos. Like, you can't... I'm sorry. <laughs> and, like, I, I really like her relationship with Sawyer, but I, I, like, also kind of, like, think that it would add an added dynamic to it if, like, you got, like... She is kind of supposed to represent this very, like, wild, untamable woman and, like, he doesn't really know what to do with her or, like, how to react to her and I think that that would, like, add an extra dynamic. What, and you
3: get a sense of that, especially in the jailhouse scene... Within volume one where he just like he just walks away. He lets her go because he clearly is attracted to her. But he just he can't control this woman. I thought that was so well played out speaking to her character. There are positives and downsides to such a dynamic character like that. And I felt that scene was very poetic and sad in that aspect.
4: So Harley Quinn's really important bisexual representation because she well, uh, she's also like an abuse survivor. And she um, she starts out like as kind of like this character who's very tied to the Joker, and then she ends up kind of like learning how to let go of him, and like but she's she's still like emotionally like torn up from that relationship and trying to like figure herself out while pursuing a new relationship with a woman, with uh, Poison Ivy. And I just think that she's so realistic because, like, with uh, bi and pan people, like, you can't really separate the straight part from the gay part. Like, it all kind of bleeds together. And, like, I think that, like, her status as a survivor and, like, still trying to, like, figure herself out, even afterwards in a new relationship, you know, like... It's still like very important to her character arc and to who she is. I just really like Harley Quinn. That's it.
3: I mean, I think one of the most effective and touching stories in Love is Love was the Paul Denny story with Harley Quinn and Poison Ivy. It didn't relate necessarily to the struggles of being queer, but it related to just the joy of being in a relationship and having somebody else who is also queer. And I thought that was easily one of the best stories in the anthology.
2: All right, so out of everything we read for this podcast, does anyone want to share a moment from one of the comics that they really liked?
1: Uh, I think that uh, one of the books I found most interesting that we read was uh, Trees, which, for those of you who don't know, is a book written by Warren Ellis, and I, th- I think it, it really shows. I, I think Warren Ellis has a very unique style to him, and a lot of ideas that he, he brings forward are kind of uh, – you could kind of tell that it's a Warren Ellis book. Um, in a very positive way, and it's essentially about these extraterrestrial towers, kind of being planted on on various cities on Earth, without like without like a hundred percent explanation of how they work and and what's going to happen to them. And basically, it's it's about a boy, who um, is uh, he's he's kind of uh, talented as an artist, and he uh, visits this city, like I think it's called the the, the city of Shu. I don't know if it's entirely fictional. I'm, I'm pretty sure there is there some basis in, in reality or at least uh, inspiration. And it has uh, this tower planted in the middle of the city. And basically, um, like the socio-cultural uh, impact that uh, the, the tree would have is that uh, in the middle of like a, a really like non... Uh, or I guess a, like a really hetero, cis heteronormative um, non inclusive society is it's this one city for people who can be themselves. So basically, uh, our our like one of our main characters is uh, is a boy who hasn't really been exposed to a lot of queer people, and then he meets a, a trans woman and accidentally sees that she still has a penis. So as he's kind of getting more into like his own sexual identity or even gender identity, I don't, maybe you could read that into that. Um, he's talking to, um, a lot of her friends and then start, starts having sex with, with her and various of her friends, some of whom are trans as well some of who are not. And we get this sense of, uh, okay, this is like a, this is like an interesting experiment. We, we have this like very liberal city where, um, people can finally be themselves and that's like the cultural impact that this this uh, extraterrestrial tree would have but then in the ending of the comics he die he dies in a very gruesome way in uh, like in in front of his newfound love and it's kind of uh it's all about how uh they are basically quote-unquote ending the experiment of of like a very liberal society and I think that this speaks very strongly to a lot of real life experiences that people may be experiencing um, and having in terms of finding themselves and in terms of finding out more about like gender identity and whatnot. I think that's pretty relatable. And then um, kind of this, um, this fear of losing all of that in, in, in basically seconds because of uh, some, some form of uh, authoritarian regime. You can just ask
2: Saga fans. A comic is not the same unless it has a tree in it. Just pointing that out. But what you said was beautiful. Anyone else have a moment they want to share from one of the comics that um, they liked?
0: There are actually like quite a few moments in Love is Love where the comic writers are, in a way, addressing their children or talking about like the tragedy that happened at the Pulse nightclub in the context of their children. And... I think that really gets at the core of what we're trying to say is that like being gay is not a choice. Being queer in any kind of way is not a choice. So this affects everyone. Like if you plan on like having kids, if you plan on like expanding your family in kind of any kind of way, this affects you. And that really like touched me. The fact that like people found out about this horrible thing that happened to all of these queer people of color and they were like the first thing i want to do is like make sure my child is okay like i want to go check up on my child as they sleep at night and like all of these things and that's what it comes down to is like as humanity we're one big family and like whether you like it or not you probably are part of the queer community in some way or another and i feel like those those comics in Love is Love really got at that. This is something that concerns all of us.
5: Yeah, I think I had a similar moment where not a, it was not in a particular comic so much as where I realized that um, everyone's, kind of, like you said, part of this community in some way, shape, or form, but not in the same way you did, more or less that when I was reading these comics, it made me realize that some of the books that most profoundly touch on queerness and homosexuality are the ones that are not explicitly about it. Like the X-Men ones. Or the
2: Wonder Wonder Woman Earth one, Tim, that I had to read twice because I had no lines in it about being queer.
5: (laughs) Exactly. Or the Wonder Woman one or the, um, What's the other one? Jesus, I'm forgetting like trees. So like those are not explicitly about homosexuality. It's not like that's the main only. The title
2: thing. is trees. It says it right there. It's about trees.
5: <laughs> <laughs> it's a, essentially it's a book for the Lorax. But in like but like those but those also tend to make the most profound points because they like they're letting you know it's something that's part of the story of everyone, but it's not the only one. And I think that normalizes the fact that people are gay. It's the thing. It, we have them all around us.
2: We're such saps for trees. Get it? <laughs> See what I did there?
0: <laughs> Damn.
2: Oh, my God. My dad would actually be humiliated of me from that joke. But um, <laughs> part of him would have laughed.
3: For me, I think my favorite comic was probably Bitch Planet. Mm-hmm. And spoiler alert, I, <laughs> I came in loving Bitch Planet. But for me, the aspect I find most compelling is that the other isn't the other in Bitch Planet. You have these people of color, you have these different um, gender expressions, these different sexualities. And even though they're the other of that universe, by virtue of being on Bitch Planet, you are an other, just within that environment, the main cast is not the other. There is no token black, there is no token queer. And for me, that's still really novel in 2017 and to have them be fully fleshed out characters with these character dynamics and histories in this fascinating world is really rewarding.
4: I really liked bitch planet. um, And I also really liked rat Queens. I just, I just really like that we're starting to get into this moment where we can have stories that are like sci-fi fantasy stuff that happen to have LGBT people and while it's all it's not the most important thing about their character it also still is a part of their character and it's treating treated with respect and it's just really exciting to see like in both of those comics like all these like kick-ass women just like doing whatever and like wearing what they want to wear and like or well, in Bitch Planet, they're they're in prison, so they're not really. But um, <laughs> um, to see like different types of women, and and not see this just one, this this one kind of cookie cutter model of like what a female character is supposed to be like, and so I I just really like um, that we're starting to go into that and starting to allow LGBT people to be like whatever they want to be instead of just like love tragedy or the comic relief like in some straight cis character's world you know we get we get to be rat queens so yeah
2: all right so everybody name one book from the reading that you recommend
4: fun home is a classic and everyone should read it it's like groundbreaking in how it utilizes the comic genre and also kind of encapsulates or it captures um, the way that different generations of LGBT people have had different experiences and how they can have a deep psychological impact. And it's just a very like personal, emotional read.
0: And I
4: recommend it to everyone.
0: Honestly, if I have to recommend one off of this reading list, I have to go with Bitch Planet. It just hits on so many different levels. Like, it's meta in so many different ways. It's playing off of the like prison women's exploitation genre in so many ways. It's feminist, it's queer. Um, There's amazing transgender representation that kind of sets up transgender women as being like opposed to patriarchal norms and their identities in and of itself opposing that and being revolutionary and I love that and the art is f***ing great too.
3: For me, um, while I do have quite a few problems with Love is Love and certain stories in Love is Love, I would have to recommend it. One, because of the backstory behind it, how IDW and DC collaborated and that this was for charity. I think that alone is the reason to purchase the book, quite frankly. But also the different perspectives on what it is to be queer. There are different answers and different as like aspects of what queerness is portrayed by offers of various backgrounds, and I think that perspective is very informative. And to see superheroes engage with that too, DC superheroes is wonderful.
1: I think that uh, if I had to choose one, I'd probably go with trees. It's very in terms of like the fictional world it creates and narrative uh, narrative wise, it's really interesting. And you should take a look at that. But uh, I would also advise anyone to take a look at Love is Love. I mean, as has been said uh, by Rachel, it's really, it's, an, uh, it, it's not perfect, but it's a great uh, collaboration and product uh, and, and project, frankly. And yeah, I thought it was really great to see some of the characters react to that um, in a very real way, which kind of reminded me of, uh, back when... Uh, I think it's, it was Straczynski who did, like, an amazing Spider-Man book on... Yes. on yeah, 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 on the, the, the totem extent, thing. Yeah, which was kind of... Uh, yeah, that there was, there was sim- moving in a similar way, I, I would say. Also, um, I would advise anyone to take a look at some of, like, the most important North Star issues, like his, uh, his gay marriage, obviously, also is coming out, Uh I mean, some of this, uh, especially is coming out, might be a bit dated and the um, I guess the dialogue is kind of wooden at times. But it's uh, like from a, a historical point of view, it's interesting to take a look at because uh, North Star is just like the, the first explicitly gay superhero in the genre. I think not the first to come out, but the first uh, in terms of when the character was created. Oh,
2: guys, wait. Before you go, Tim, I, I have to ask about a moment. I have to ask about this moment. Because it is so iconically bad to me that I have to ask what you all thought of Jean Grey outing Iceman.
5: Oh, hated it.
2: Problematic.
5: I, People kill themselves over that, Jean Grey. Yeah. Here's the thing I had wrong with it. It wasn't that she... Because I thought... If, cause I, since I heard about it, I thought at first it was like she told everyone else who was gay. But this thing was worse because she was like telling him like, no you're gay he's like it's like i don't know she's like convincing him like no you're gay and making him accept it like speeding up the process it's like no and then for him to be like thanks for doing that you're really nosy i'm like no like to wrap it up and say it's okay that's not okay for her and i think it's like oh it just it leaves a very bad taste in your mouth when you're done with it and i don't know how it reads in the context of the rest of that arc or like (laughs) <laughs> but in, in in regards to that specific issue, it was like the overriding thing that made ever that was that all that issue was about in my mind. And then I was just thinking, "Wow, this was really um, this is really poorly done." I don't think whoever wrote this was very informed. Bendis. Yeah, I was like, I don't think he's very informed about how this works. stick to Spider Woman, Bendis.
4: Yeah, it kind of felt very. I guess, straight savior ish to me. Like, it was like she just kind of comes over and, like, cures him of his internalized homophobia. And it's like, it's not like in the real world, as Justin was saying, that could have serious repercussions. There might, like, there might be genuine reasons why he's still in the closet, it might be for his physical safety like you you don't know and you really can't make that call and i think that there's kind of this assumption that coming out of the closet the closet is always this great thing that like every LGBT person has to do as soon as possible. And for some people that's just not a reality and that's, that's not their fault, that's not a weakness of character or anything like that. They literally can't do that and we have to accept the reality is that people are still being kicked out of their homes over this, people are still being attacked, you know? Like you can't just pretend that that stuff's not a thing anymore.
2: I want to use the word reckless uh, because I think this says to young women who are reading this that that is acceptable way for your friend who you know is gay to come out and I or or to anyone and I I can laugh about it because Jean Grey has a history of doing this she did it to Aurora not about her sexuality but about her past in a classic X-Men issue and Jean Grey has a history of being a little self-involved but I thought in all seriousness, that it, it, it was reckless, um, to promote this event as Iceman coming out and to have his coming out be something that could be so damaging in real life to so many people. It has been so damaging to people to be outed, I think is a horrible thing.
1: So I think that, um, if we take a look at, uh, like the context overall, I think that some of the accusations that have been made against Bandis are not perfectly legitimate. Like, uh, for instance, uh, uh, a lot of people were taking some panels out of context and saying that it was bi-erasure. That being said, like, some of the characters were considering the possibility of him being being bisexual. Like, he could be bisexual, but then they came to the conclusion that uh, he's just gay. So, I mean, at least it was being considered. So I don't think that uh, Bendis was pretending that there's only two possibilities of being either uh, gay or straight. Right, but uh, I still ha- uh, very much agree with that. Uh, this is something that Bobby should have come to realize for himself, or should have uh, had his own like organic, organic journey with. Because, uh, like as I said, I'm not gay myself but uh, with uh, basically everything that I've heard from the community, that's the way to go. Right, you you have to you have to accept this for yourself. You have to realize this for yourself, and I guess it played kind of nicely into the. Character development of young Jean because she's uh, when it comes to like private information stuff like this she's being a real asshole um, during the entire is like time displaced on your X Men run so it, it it's I guess it, it's very fitting for Jean to do that but then as uh, the uh, as the writer you still have kind of like the responsibility to show the reader that okay this is not this is not the way you want to go in in, like in real life. This is usually not acceptable because of uh, uh, this reason and that reason. Like, I I think it would have been pretty easy to include like a scene with, uh, let's say even older Bobby where he's like, okay, sure. But I mean, I, I denied this from myself, uh, like for for all this time and now you just walk in and uh, tell me that you've like read the mind of my time displaced self and that now I'm supposed to like accept that in a matter of like a few seconds like uh, don't you think that that is uh, like r- really like self-righteous and uh, unrealistic and kind of harmful to gay people so I I, I don't I don't necessarily think that he should have used exactly these words, but something along those lines, I think, would have been possible. <laughs> to, um, I guess, um, I guess, uh, work on the concerns that the community had with with the scene, and uh, to be frank, like the, I guess, the scene in which they talked to older Bobby uh, took place in, I think it was Uncanny X Men six hundred. And Bendis had a lot of time working on Uncanny X Men 600. It came out uh, like almost half a year later than it was originally supposed to. Um, and, and he was, I feel like originally he was, he was saying stuff like it's going to be 600 pages long. So he had, he did spend a lot of time working on this issue, and he could have easily included something about that. But yeah, I mean overall, I, I think it's not the not the worst representation. But I, I absolutely agree with. Um, I'm I'm not really in the place to disagree either. So when the when the community says that this is definitely a concern, then yeah, absolutely sure it is.
2: Yeah, I thought it robbed him of his moment. Um, right.
4: I, I just want to add that personally, like as a bisexual person, reading that scene, I also did think that it was bi erasure because oh, okay. even though even though they gave that as a possibility, it was kind of just like. Oh well, you know, maybe, but nah, it was kind of like this very half-assed like um no just thing. kind of throwing it in there so that they could um say no, he's not and, and like and, and bisexuality kind of gets used like that a lot. It's kind of like people kind of are like oh, well, maybe as kind of this afterthought. Like, it's not its own sexual orientation that should be, like, seriously considered. And, um, like, you can see this in, um, like, Orange is the New Black. Piper Chapman could is most likely bisexual or pansexual. But characters refuse to call her that. They either call her straight or they call her a lesbian. And the only character who ever even uses the term bisexual is larry her um ex like fiance in this really half-assed well maybe she's bi you know like it's like very not thought out it's very like last minute well that could also be a thing but we're not going to think about it so that was just kind of the vibe i was getting from that comic
2: yeah i will say for me i i didn't think it was by and i guess only because i know of five or six X-Men, off the top of my head, six that are bisexual. And I know Bendis has written them. And But I think if you take that scene, it's really hard not to see it as by a You know, and you're, if you're not, if you don't know the story of Mystique and Daken, or Daken, I call him Daken. It's Daken, right, Marius?
1: I think it's Daken, Daken. but I, oh, I could shit. be wrong.
2: You know what, stop with, with these names, or at least put them on a TV show so I know how to pronounce them. Daken, uh, and the other ones that I can't Bye, remember. Long. Sylock, I
1: thought she was too, is she? I'm pretty sure she's bisexual or pansexual. Mm. I mean yeah. she did have sex with like the female clone of Phantomax. Oh, okay, yeah. But also with the with like regular male Phantom X, so okay. I guess that counts.
2: Are we talking specific? yeah, and then Karma, but she's um I think just a lesbian just. Um.
1: Yeah, she's, she's a last
2: <laughs> After all this, let's start with question one. Justin, defining queerness, how do you do it? Okay, cool. I think we've exhausted this Jean Grey thing. I just have to talk about it because I thought it was dangerous and I thought it was important to bring up. Tim, recommend me a book.
5: I think the one that I would recommend the most um, would either be Lumberjanes or Wonder Woman Earth One by Grant Morrison. I think Lumberjanes because it's a little more juvenile and you get to see some like you get to see a very natural depiction of how homosexuality can exist among friends but then with Wonder Woman Earth 1 I think the power of that is a reinvention of a comic character that makes sense and introduces a homosexual element to it without seeming like it was just clunkily shoved in there it's saying like because as justin said earlier he had to reread it because they didn't actually explicitly state it anywhere and i think that's the way you should be doing it if you're going to reinvent a character you should only do it if it makes sense one woman it makes sense she lives on an island of only women for thousands of years what are they gonna do not have sex probably not so i think it's very nice that Grant Morrison was able to do that. And I think it's also really interesting that as a man, he was able to write about an all-female thing without it making it without making it seem too much like it was male gazy. Like it didn't; it was not overly sexualized. It was really just like him saying, "Look, these are ladies. They have sex. It happens. They like each other. Homosexuality is a thing, and it's probably and it makes logical sense. It's a part of Wonder Woman. So I think the normalization aspect of that and Lumberjanes are the big draws I have for those two.
2: And for me, I would in terms of what you're talking about the normalization, I would go with *Why the Last Man* as well. I thought that um, *Doctor Man* and *Agent 355* uh, their relationship was interesting. I thought, like Malin, I'm going to recommend *Fun Home*. Uh, a lot of people love that scene in the car with her and her father. I mean, there are just moments in *Fun Home* that are just so breathtaking. It's just so real. It's there's nothing Hollywood about it. There, it's just a great work of memoir and it's something that comics do best as i often say and i think everyone should read it period it's just a beautiful graphic novel and one of my favorites uh
1: so yeah i I think the podcast was really interesting and informative uh of uh, a lot of perspectives and uh, i had great fun being on it thank you again justin for having me on uh and i i thought it was great that uh i got to talk about a lot of these like queer uh, I guess uh, not only feelings but thoughts in general that I have been having lately, some of them for the first time, actually, I think to you guys so that's uh so that was fun and uh yeah i i I don't know we'll see uh, what the future brings, but it was interesting uh talking about uh, these topics of representation. Uh, And also about, like, the alleged uh, gender binary and why it's bullshit. And uh, I I hope that uh, we could convince some of our maybe, like, more conservative listeners if we even have those. I just hope we're having some positive impact, uh, especially in Pride Month, which is great.
2: I think that's really beautiful. And I'd say, I want to second that, and that I feel like I learned a lot, period. I learned a lot about everybody here. I feel closer to everybody here. I feel like we really exhibited a lot of who we are. And I think that that's really beautiful. So I think that that's going to do it for this episode. So thank you, Madeline. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you, Marius and Tim. And again, don't forget to check us out at com. We have more podcasts, videos, articles, interviews. We also give free hugs only in person, though, if you come to see us at a Comic-Con during a panel. But yeah, anyway, have a good night, everybody. Have a great Pride Month, and go buy some queer comics.